I once aspired to be the Bob Ross of video game YouTubers. You know, I wanted to just really calmly play games and just, yeah, we're just going to run over here now and shoot, shoot this guy. (laughs) He's a bad guy though. We have a little, uh, we have a little story about, uh, you know, like you could make up stories about how, (laughs) how the bad guys were like, you know, they used to be good, but Howdy ho squares, welcome to Square Waves FM episode number 40. 40, damn. Beep. Beep. 40 is a big number, huh? Beep. That's like twice as many fingers and toes as I have. I'll have to I'll have to double count it when we're off the air, I suppose. Yeah, Hi. you can. Hi. Hi, guys. Beep. Beep. Why are we beeping? I don't know. I feel like beeping today. Beep. Beep. Was that like a robot beep or a bird beep or something else? That is a bird beep. A bird beep. Yeah. Beep. beep. Okay. Hi, bird. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Podcast. Oh, yeah. There's, like, people listening and shit. Hi, guys. Um, Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. Always a pleasure and a half to be talking to you fine, intelligent people. Um, we, I don't know. We got, like, a show and stuff, huh? Yeah. I suppose uh, you can start with uh, the basic stuff. I see you have a note in here for uh, that uh, Bob Rass segment. Oh, Right. Right. So, jeez, it's been so long since I've started off uh, doing the intro for this podcast that I've, like, forgotten how. Pardon my awkwardness. Um, Awkward. Beep. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the uh, I, I like to edit in uh, a little clip or s- of some sort at the beginning of each episode. So the one that I put at the beginning of this episode is from the latest PC Gamer show, which is a podcast slash live Twitch show. I think they do it at... 1 p.m. Pacific time every week, every Tuesday, which is 4 p.m. Eastern, and I don't know. Yep. It's like seven Wednesdays from now uh, in all the other ungodly time zones of you freaks who listen from all over the world. But um, great show. Very intelligent people, as always. And PC Gamer is, of course, my favorite magazine of all time. I still subscribe electronically, and their podcast is still extremely entertaining to listen to. Although, didn't you say... A short while ago at over breakfast that uh, you were considering having to uh, get rid of it as one of the podcasts you listen to because you were inundated with so many and that you wanted to listen to somebody else's. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, I did start listening to Nostalgia Road Trip, which is the podcast of last week's guest, uh, uh, Mr. Menez. Uh, and I can't remember the name, Edmund, Edmund or something, Edmundo. I don't remember the name of his co-host right now, but uh, <laughs> I've listened to two of their episodes and I enjoyed it very much. Unlike our podcast, those two know how to do a concise show. Their show is between like 30 and 45 minutes, which is like how long it takes me to say my name on this show. So thankfully, I didn't have to give up a PC Gamer podcast after all. Not quite yet. That's good. So the this Bob Ross segment, it, it was uh, – uh, they, they mentioned it on their last show. This is a strange phenomenon. I should link to this in the show notes. Yes, yes you should. Um, it's, it's an odd phenomenon where every Bob Ross – for those who don't know, Bob Ross was like a painter who had a, an American – I think it was a public access TV show called and The Joy of Afro. Painting. He does have a mega – Afro. So his show was called The Joy of Painting, and he was just a super chilled, laid-back, Zen master kind of a guy who spoke in a very even, relaxed tone. And he just I seems know like, he wasn't uh, talking between takes. He may have been doing a take-toke. 
<laughs> but uh, he acts like it, I suppose. He's just like a very even-tempered, mild-mannered, very pleasant, easygoing guy. And he's really nice to listen to. So he passed away a few years ago. And someone since then has taken to uh, twitch.tv to post or to, to stream every show that he's ever done, kind of one after the other. I believe it's like 15 hours or so of or 10 hours or so of uh, shows end to end. So they just play them one after the other all day, every day. Oh, that's insane. And when we took a look for the heck of it yesterday, there were over 50,000 people watching it. And Twitch chat was going like bananas of people. I know. Like saying, oh, don't don't put the paintbrush there. Where's the fucking tree? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only time I'd seen the Twitch channel go that crazy was when I uh, watched the uh, premiere for the upcoming World of Warcraft Legion uh, expansion where, the, where Blizz first released the... Uh, the first cinematic clip for the newest expansion, which is coming out uh, in 2016. Yeah. Although that's full of uh, twat cunts. It's Twitch. Love. They're all twat cunts. <laughs> that's all there is. Well, true, but more so than usual, because this is basically uh, the general WoW community moving trade chat to a more to a different online venue. That's the Twitch community in a nutshell. Twitch has the most repulsive community imaginable, pretty much. But you don't go to Bob Ross's Twitch channel for the community, or you do just to kind of gaze slack-jawed at it, amazed that 50,000 people are interested in watching some guy paint. But well, there the it is. Well, the guy has a cert- had a certain amount of talent. A certain amount? That certain amount is, like, off the charts enormous. He's an exceptionally mm-hmm. talented guy, and it's amazing what he does with so few little strokes. So anyway, they're talking about him on PC Gamer uh, podcast. And there is one uh, one of their editors, I think he's executive editor, his name is Tyler Wilde. Isn't that a great name? That's like a superhero name. <laughs> um, he, uh, they, they, they say in the show, I won't give the whole thing away, but they say in the show that uh, he as well is an artist and that he is kind of renowned for speaking very softly. He's always the quietest voice of the not very rowdy, but not very shy bunch. Um, so... He kind of talks a little bit about how Bob Ross has inspired him in various ways over his life. But uh, it's a really funny uh, little clip at the beginning of the show, which was six minutes ago. So that's enough about that. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple of minutes ago, three people on the Square Waves FM Twitter were kind of asking me and expressing interest in contributing to a third NPC zine which is super cool. I'm so happy to hear that you guys enjoy that so much. Um, that, as I've mentioned before, that was an endeavor that was mostly done by uh, by previous co-host, Chris. He's the one who did all the layouts and the photocopying. He uh, put it onto paper and he paid to print them out and to mail them all over the world. Hell of a generous guy and a very good friend of mine and of the show, of course. Mm-hmm. Um I uh, am not quite so inclined to uh, spend a bunch of money mailing it out, but I would love to host a little thing on the web, and I would do layouts and stuff like that. I'd probably publish it either as a PDF or maybe as a series of web pages or something like that. Um, There's also been interest expressed that it look retro and used, so uh, why not? That can be done. So, hey, if anyone's interested in contributing an article or two or three or five, (laughs) <laughs> By all means, send them to squarefm at demodulated.com. Bianca and I have both contributed several articles to these. 
Oh, I see. I've been recruited yet again. <laughs> of course you have. It wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be square waves without you, Tuts. Oh yeah, without me and my peon squishing. <laughs> peon squishing, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That was a cute article. Was it you that sent the photo to Chris, or did they find one? Uh, yes, that was the one I uh, found on the web. Mm. The peon was crying. It was so perfect. Cool. Yeah, the peons are really cute. I yes, love they them. do. Something you're doing. Something you're doing. I love how they um, keep them in World of Warcraft. Yeah. Was it? What's the zone? It's the orc starting zone. Duratan. Durator. Durator. Yeah. And then they have the. Yeah, Duratar. And then they have the uh, peasant equivalent in Elwyn Forest. Do they have quests about that, though? And they they're, they're just quests. kind of running around, aren't Actually, they? Actually, yes, they have quests. If you go to um, East Elwyn's uh, logging camp, the East logging camp, they have mm. the uh, the peasants there. And if you click them, they uh, they have the same derpy human voices. Oh, that's great. And I, the uh, head of the camp yells at all the, pe- at all the peasants for being slow, slacky twats. Right. <laughs> Oh, are those the guys on on horses or something? I can no, sort of that's, picture the area. that's that's kind of that's near Hearthglen. Is that where you train your riding? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, that's where you train your riding initially. If you mm. were a human, now you just do it in um, Stormwind, either at the flight path, either at the flight path, at the flight path guy, or at or at this place where uh, the training dummies are. Oh yeah. Well, I do have a soft spot for the. The, the cyber electronic fantasy proletariat. They're all so cute the way that they work all hard. Either they work hard or they're lazy and you have to clock them on the head with a hammer or something, depending on whether you're the good or the evil <laughs> faction. But, uh, yeah. Um, I have to give a great big thank you to Francisco Gonzalez. Hi, Francisco. He uh, gave me the soundtrack for the game called Dropsy, which, to the best of my knowledge, is about a clown that hugs people, something like that. It looks really creepy. It's kind of like a uh, pixel art-looking uh, adventure game, as far as I know, and I've heard pretty good things about it. I should probably go and pick it up and give it a try. But uh, the soundtrack is fantastic. It's uh, kind of like... Uh, I don't know, like cool jazz kind of uh, soundtrack. There's like saxophone and uh, like light percussion. It's kind of very moody and suave and <laughs> laid back. It's uh, very... The antithesis to you, in other words. Sorry? The antithesis to you. Oh, I'm chill, dude. Yeah, but you're not suave. I'm not suave. You have, you, you, you have no swag, yo. You well, ain't got swag. The day I have swag, you can clunk me on the head with one of those freaking peon hammers, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, so it's a soundtrack by Chris Schlarb, and I highly Slarp. recommend it. Yes, Schlarb, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, so pick it up. It's like five bucks. I'll, uh, stick a, I'll stick a link to it in the show notes. But thank you very much, Francisco. I also have to thank... Uh, trolls for two things, as a matter of fact. Number one, he gifted me a game that Ben Chandler told us about a little while ago called Else Heartbreak. Else Heartbreak. Um, I played it for a few minutes so far. I got to like the third area or so. Very kind of intriguing interface. It kind of controls like a real time strategy game, sort of. It kind of controls like XCOM or something. Like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm surprised that you would have played something that was sim- that was close to an RTS. Given well, it's an adventure game. Mm. It's an adventure game, as far as That's I can it. tell. But the controls are, you can like rotate the world. It is point and click, but you can rotate the world, and then you'll click on an item, and it gives you a menu of options that you can do to it. I mean, it has a lot of similarities to any other interface for a point and click adventure game, but just the way that you move your 
character around. Uh, okay, I like, guess. By clicking and by rotating the camera. It's peculiar for a real-time strategy. Or sorry, for an adventure game. Yeah, okay. So, thanks a million for that, Trolls. Boy, is that a generous thing. And also, um, uh, Trolls has a uh, Pay What You Want album that I believe he, if I'm rem- remembering the story right, I think he like took some vacation off of work, some holiday, as you overseas limeys like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote an album. Which is pretty damn ambitious and awesome. And for those who haven't heard Troll's music, he's a very, very talented composer, yes, instrumentalist, he is. and a and a. And composer. it actually sounds like real music too. It does sound like real music. It's <laughs> Unlike like, any of the crap that I've had to put up with Brian making. Well, pardon me. <laughs> pardon the shit out of me. I would, but it would just go all over the living room. Yeah, I know, right <laughs> into the fan. So. Uh, it's uh, there's a few guitar tracks, but it's predominantly kind of electronic stuff, and one or two of the songs are up tempo, but most of them are uh, are a slower tempo and kind of moody and breezy with like uh, with like uh, elongated synth chords and stuff like that. It's kind of like a synth rock sort of a motif, I suppose I would describe it as. It's yeah, very good. It does seem like synth rock, and it def- and. Uh I don't know how else to describe it. It was it well composed. Me, it is well composed. It remind it's it's well composed and well mastered, and it reminds me a lot of the original Binding of Isaac soundtrack. In yes, its you had mentioned tone. It's, it's yeah, a little bit like that, moody, how spooky. it sounded uh, similar to the original Binding of Isaac, not the new soundtrack. For some reason, we just don't like the new soundtrack. And for those of you who yeah. have played both the old and the new Binding of Isaacs, there is a way to uh, import the. Uh, soundtrack into your uh, new into the current directory if you have the old one and then play the game with the uh, old music which oh yeah was that a mod or something um no it's not a mod the files? It, it was just a simple matter of moving the files around oh that's which neat. i had done prior to the release of afterbirth right yeah i didn't like the new soundtrack as much either they got a different guy to do it and it's much more like moody rock kind of stuff whereas the previous one was not dance music, but it was electronic, and it just had more of a spooky mood to it instead of a dark mood, if that really makes much sense. Uh, so more like a uh, a kind of a spooky mood where you're in a cheesy uh, ride at a uh, carnival, as opposed to... That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, like a cheesy carnival where either you go to the haunted house, you know it's the cheapest piece of crap they put together, but you're going in because it's fun, as opposed to the psychological horrors where you're trying to, where you run into the closet to avoid the ghost so it doesn't see you, even though you could theoretically walk to the door and strangle you, but it doesn't see you for some stupid reason. That is a very specific description <laughs> of a music album. <laughs> Nicely done. You're very welcome. <laughs> So Troll's album is called Wasted Talent, which is a misnomer if ever I've heard one. Yes, indeed. And of course, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, last week when we had Robert on, for those of you who remember to listen, we uh, spoke about Linux. And a little bit, just about during, in the week prior to that, I had uh, been contemplating doing something with an old netbook of mine, putting uh, Linux on it. Um, and the uh, show with Robert actually prompted me... Well, based on a question I asked him about what uh, distro I should use to take netbook and actually properly format it and uh, toss on a uh, distro. So, when all is said and done, I have uh, Lubuntu, the lightweight version of Lubuntu, on my netbook now. This is the same netbook that pri- that uh, just weeks ago was the most sluggish piece of garbage I'd ever seen. It had a better, it ha- would have had better use as a paperweight. 
But needless to say, it has been in the hands of a certain parent. And um, that parent uh, managed to do certain things to it that inevitably causes it to slow down. He's like and the when- inverse Midas. <laughs> He's the inverse Midas. Yeah, really. Whatever you touch turns to slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I avast ran without my prompt and it came up with 54 things wrong with it. And I don't even know what those 54 things were, uh. but for some reason it seemed to include various Windows files and other aspects of hardware. Right. Although you're, you're misremembering that's that compute, that netbook was slow the day you bought it when it was brand spanking new. It was slow, but not intolerably slow. It was usable slow. It depends on your definition of intolerable. I had very little patience for it. Yeah, I actually used it at an internship because I could because the computers available were even worse than this, and they were desktops. But then again, they were desktop Macs, which were I do not I cannot put this nicely. They were just big fucking steaming piles of shit. These were the most useless things I'd ever encountered. I actually spent an hour waiting for it to boot up and start Word before I could get any work done. So I would sit there twiddling my thumbs at my internship because this thing wouldn't boot up. And if you were lucky, it it wouldn't crash on you. Right. So yes, I used the netbook because it was faster than a desktop computer. Yeah, well that's brutal too because that netbook has a really low resolution monitor as well. It must have sucked for writing and doing page layouts and web stuff. Um, I didn't have to do too many page layouts. It was mostly writing and I could tolerate it. So I just turned the, I just zoomed it out a bit. Mm-hmm. If only we could install like Chrome OS on that machine. Cause that's one. It's like very little footprint on the, uh, on the computer itself. It mm-hmm. mostly accesses cloud-based applications. Although we're thinking now about how long it takes you to load. Like Google Play Music, for example, on a web browser, maybe that would still be very slow. It, I remember it, was like, it loaded slow enough that Firefox asked if it had crashed and you still want to keep loading. Yeah, but I think that was due to the fact that I hadn't updated the Flash plugins and I needed to get that done. Oh, is it better now? Yes, it's much better now. It still slow, loads slowly, but I think that's a result of it being white over the uh, over our wireless connection, which is already garbage to begin with. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's better now, now that I have the actual update in. Because on my phone, I get like four megabytes a second or so over our Wi-Fi network. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a computer. It has an Atom CPU, an Intel Atom CPU, which is very low end. Yeah. And it has, I don't even think it was a 5400 RPM hard drive. I think it was like 4300 or some like super slow, super cheap thing. Mm-hmm. But with Lubuntu on, it actually is faster than it was with Windows XP. Yeah, it is. And perhaps only because it doesn't have a lot of software on it yet, but it is running very nice and lean. Yep. And most impressively, it, it uh, detected all the hardware, which is my biggest worry when you uh, put on Windows for the first time, because often when I install Windows, it won't have like network drivers, for example. So you have to go to another computer to your phone and download the network drivers mm-hmm. and plug it into your computer and install it that way. And that's the basis for installing the rest of the drivers that aren't detected. And if you didn't write down what drivers were installed, like if you didn't go to the device manager, for example, and take note of which hardware is in your computer, laptops in particular happen to like usually have proprietary hardware, like an embedded Mm -hmm. webcam, for example. Then if you didn't write it down, it's really difficult to figure out what you've got in there, unless it's well-documented on the website uh, from the vendor, which I think it was. Yeah, this one was well-documented. And the vendor even had Linux drivers, which we didn't need to check out because they all seem to auto-detect. But that was really nice to see that. Yes, it was. It was Asus, I think, is the vendor for yes. your laptop. Yep. 
it was a good it boots up nicely it runs adequately definitely better than when i had windows xp which i think was more of a memory hog than ubuntu was in this respect yeah i think so windows xp was not a very well optimized operating system for mobile computers or for laptops but i don't know what you call those yeah but uh windows 7 was better than that and they get better with every iteration i'm so curious to see what windows 10 would be like on that laptop me too but <laughs> I got Linux working, and I'd rather keep this with Linux and just play with it like that. Yeah, it is pretty fun to play with that stuff. You seem to have found uh, replacements for most of the software that you had installed on it Yep. in Windows. Mm -hmm. And there's no problem with using free software. Might as well. It's there for – it's why it's there. Oh, of course. So you found like an instant messenger. You have an IRC client. Yep. I just have to get it set up. I have all the documentation I need. I found it on the Lubuntu website. Oh, yeah, you even started customizing it a little bit. You changed the uh, how the clock in the bottom right-hand corner was displayed in your yep. uh, window manager, whatever it's called. Yep. And so I customized that with a specific uh, string of characters, so it displayed the time and date. I even had it so it only displayed the uh, day and month. I didn't need the year to be displayed. Mm -hmm. that, of course, that'll be, my, that'll be a problem for future Bianca in 2016 when I boot it up and I can't remember what fucking year it is. Oh, that's... That's a problem for future Brian, too. <laughs> when I sign checks, I sign from like two years ago because I don't know what's what. That's if you ever do sign a check because the last few checks for rent all fell, in, fell to me even though you would say you said you'd write them. Yeah, I know. I always forget. Dear, can you write a check? I forgot to write the rent check. Mm. <laughs> okay. So once again, thanks to Robert for the uh, Lubuntu suggestion. Yeah, thanks, Robert. That was that was a really fun discussion we had with him, too. Mm -hmm. That was a very good one. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, you listen to this one right now, go listen to that one next. That's right. Check out his other podcast, too. It's short and sweet. He has two other podcasts, I believe, at least two others. Mm -hmm. Nostalgia Road Trip is one, and see if I can remember the name of the other one, VGM something or other, with uh, where, where I think they just play a playlist of uh, – oh, Retro VGM Revival Hour is what it's called. We have it mm -hmm. on last week's uh, show notes. Uh, both of those we have on last week's show notes. But uh, I, I enjoyed the uh, saucy content uh, that, that I heard in, in the last uh, in the last show. Yeah. So. Um, oh, can I can I can I get on my soapbox and cry? <laughs> I thought this whole podcast was your soapbox. Oh, that's right. What am I asking you for? <laughs> this is my show, and I'll cry if I want to. Yeah. So this is your party, and you'll cry if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. By all means. All right. So I wouldn't call myself a Microsoft fanboy, but I love Microsoft a lot, and I have great faith in their solutions and in their software, and I always have. I've been I've been using uh, Microsoft operating systems for over 30 years now, and uh, their various software. I've, I've mostly switched to, like, few by few over the course of the years, just because it's so pleasant to kind of have everything within the one vendor's ecosystem, because their software tends to play well with their other bits of software. Like, you can copy from one application and paste it intelligently into another and have it manipulate it nicely. And often remember your format, or at least... Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, the kind of the cornerstone of the new Microsoft was OneDrive, formerly SkyDrive, which is their cloud-based file storage solution. It's embedded uh, and integrated into Windows 10 quite well and Windows 8 to some degree and Windows 7 like if you go out of your way to download software to make it happen. But I have rel relied heavily on OneDrive slash SkyDrive for many years. I've stopped 
saving my documents and stuff I was working on to the My Documents folder and instead save them to the OneDrive folder on my hard drive because I use something called the OneDrive Desktop Sync Client, which means that any – it's like Dropbox or like Google Drive. If you install this client, then it creates a folder on your hard drive and anything you save into that folder – it automatically uploads or synchronizes, I should say, with the uh, cloud-based storage version. So let me let me bring up my storage quota while we're on the topic. Um, Microsoft just announced that their formerly 15 gigabytes per user quota is being reduced now for the free accounts to 5 gigabytes per person, which super sucks. Yes, like, it does. That super sucks to lose ten gigabytes of storage. I I had, well, let me bring up my quota here. Let's see. Let me see if I can find out where I have it. I think it was under get more storage. Yeah. Right now, through various uh, bonuses and uh, like, I have a loyalty bonus, a camera roll bonus, and a Bing bonus. Um, and the Bing bonus, geez, that was supposed to be good through through twenty seventeen, and the other ones are permanent. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, between all the different bonuses that I that I have earned through my loyalty to Microsoft, my otherwise 15 gigabyte free OneDrive storage has been increased to 140 gigabytes for a free service, which is pretty awesome. And I mean, even though the Bing bonus is 100 gigabytes, that was when I used to use Bing as my primary search engine. And I still would if I didn't have so many other services uh, with Google, like my Android phone. Yeah. Bing, is, Bing is a terrific search engine. And but I find that uh, Google had I, I would stick with Google because it's got an excellent uh, translation service. It does. So does Bing. Bing translation is fantastic. As a matter of fact, I think Twitter's automatic translation is through Bing. Yes, it is. I've and I've used it because I have a, I follow a couple of uh, Japanese people, mm. and it makes it easier to see what they've written. The one that I do follow, she has a decent command of English, but some of her tweets, most of her tweets are still in Japanese. So. Mm -hmm. I, I like to be able to read what she writes as she posts such interesting pictures. It's cool have, being able to translate that from right within the Twitter, Twitter yes, page. Yes, it too. is. And it brings it and it makes it, and it makes it easier to communicate with other people in the world you may not have otherwise been able to communicate with. Sure. And for those who are doubtful about Bing, by the way, do give it a try. I think it's just as good as Google uh, search, to mm -hmm. be honest. And it's much more popular outside of North America than it is uh, in Canada and the U.S., it has a much bigger market share elsewhere in the world. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I've got 140 gigs. Uh, until a couple of days ago, or until yesterday, I suppose, I had about 22 gigs or so of content that I stored on there. Because why shouldn't I? I uh, backed up a bunch of music on there. I backed up – I had like a double backup of my photos. My pri I primarily back up my photos to Google Images, which is like the default option if you have an Android phone. And – what else did I have in there? And I had a bunch of uh, PDFs. Magazines and comics as well. Yeah, I had like the archives of Computer Gaming Worlds on there, which is like 260 episodes, uh, uh, issues, which is a good, I don't know, five or six or seven gigs. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, I bought a bunch of comics from the uh, humble various Humble Bundles. Mm -hmm. So I had those uploaded there too, just for convenience. And so now that M uh, Microsoft says that they're going to be reducing the storage to five gigs, I... Uh, it really undermines their their message, in my opinion. Um, their previous CEO uh, – oh, why can't I think of his fucking name now? Their new CEO is Satya Nadella, their old CEO. Bomber? Bomber? Yeah, thank you. Steve Bomber was their last one. Um, Steve Bomber initiated this really big push for the cloud. Um, at first, they 
they uh, communicated that as uh, being a software plus services company as opposed to uh, Google, which really just puts their software in a web browser or in rarer cases in as a, an application that you need Chrome for. Um, so that, that's known as software as a service, whereas Microsoft was going to be software plus services, which means that they have like traditional fat client software that you install on your computer that's bolstered by online services. And the backbone to a lot of those applications was their OneDrive cloud storage uh, platform. And by reducing the amount that you get for free, I think it really undermines their goal, their strategy for trying to get people to rely on their uh, service to re rely on that backbone. And that's, you know, it's the sort of thing, like I said before, if you're invested in one application, then you're incentivized uh, to use a bunch more because they're all integrated together so nicely. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what the idea of bundling for most corporations is based on is, you know, you get the one item in this case, let's say for Microsoft, you get uh, their basic office suite. And then from there, you go, oh, well, here's the cloud service. I can store my documents here. And then I can do my searching here. And I got Skype. And then eventually it just it snowballs into something bigger and all the services become integrated. That's right. Exactly. So because they did that, oh, and they, they, the rationale for doing this, they said was, and I, I don't buy this for a second. They said that um, in addition to offering 15 gigabytes for free to anyone who wanted to sign up for an account, um, anyone who subscribes to their Office 365 uh, Office suite, which is kind of like a subscription-based Microsoft Office thing with some online services rolled in as well, anyone with that active subscription of like $7 a month or so got unlimited OneDrive storage. So there were some people that were taking advantage of that unlimited storage or what Microsoft calls abusing unlimited storage. I don't know how you can abuse something that's unlimited because by definition, there's you can't you can't use something unlimited too much. But they said some people put on like terabytes of video files from their home movies and stuff like that. And people were just consuming tons and tons and tons and tons of data. But why the hell shouldn't they? It's exactly what they were paying for. It's exactly what they were sold. So I don't buy that excuse for yeah. a second. I think it, that's bullshit. It's similar to, uh, the, to Rogers. I know years ago you were told you had uh, unlimited bandwidth at one point. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you used that bandwidth... And then you and then you got subsequent phone calls about how you shouldn't be doing this because uh, you're taking up all the bandwidth. Yeah, that's right. This was uh, Rogers is our uh, local cable company, one of our local cable companies. Yeah, they, and, one of the bigger uh, ones in Canada, along with uh, Bell, and they tend to and they have a pseudo monopoly over uh, the majority of the Canadians because of the CRTC. Yeah, they're, they're lovingly referred to in Canada as robbers. <laughs> um, they used to have – their internet service used to be called uh, The Wave. And they uh, they had a platform called Wave Unlimited. Or that, that was what the whole service was called, Wave Unlimited. You could buy different speeds, but everybody could download. There was no such thing as a download cap, and you could download as much as you wanted to. So, of course, I did because it was called Wave Unlimited. And then I got a call one day from robbers saying, <laughs> saying that I was using too much, that I was using more than like 95% of users. So I said, why shouldn't I? It's exactly what we're paying for. And I told them, the name of your product is Wave Unlimited. And they said, oh, well, the name of that product means that you can stay connected as long as you want. It doesn't, it means, but you can't necessarily use as much as you want. So I said, okay, well, that's a limit. You can't call it unlimited if you're telling me a limit. 
And they, they kept trying to wordsmith it. Oh, it's not limited. It's unlimited because you can stay connected as long as you want. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Yeah, it's like, okay, I can stay connected, but you can't do anything. That is just – it. it's illogical is what it is. It and is then, illogical. Well, it's just marketing spin. They're, they're doing one thing and saying another. They're saying one thing and doing something else. Exactly. That's Which right. is what it sounds like uh, One Microsoft doing with OneDrive. It's it's counterproductive and counterintuitive. Well, they're not lying about it. I mean, they just they just uh, established one thing and then they're changing their mind and reducing it. Yeah. So that's not as bad, in my opinion, as what Rogers did, but it's mm. still bad. It's yes, it's definitely bad. They got all these people to rely on the free. It's a bait and switch, is what it really is. Mm-hmm. It's like the crack dealer kind of a thing. The first taste is free, and then you got to pay for it. So that they have like two dollar a month plans if you want to have uh, fifty gigabytes of storage, and I believe they reduced those too. I think it used to be hundred gigabytes for two bucks. So what I think happened anyway is Windows ten is up to I don't know how many people are, have installed Windows ten now. I think it's like one hundred and twenty million people or something. Mm-hmm. They're doing phenomenally well. I yeah. think. Oh, and how many of those people whine to their children about it not working? <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the, the vast minority is my understanding. I think most people are very satisfied with it. And interestingly, I think about a quarter, like one in four Steam users, is on Windows Ten now. They wow. adopted it really fast, which is awesome. Um, so because OneDrive is so deeply ingrained with Windows 10, I think that just means that they probably got like 100 million new users all of a sudden, and it wasn't sustainable what they were offering, and so they have to reduce it so that they won't lose too much money on it. But I think this is where they should have tried to be a loss leader, kind of like what Amazon does. I have an example for this. Um, Amazon... Amazon really likes being a lost leader whenever they can. They like to undercut people just to get you into their ecosystem so that you'll stay with them. The hardest thing to do is to get someone to pay for anything just to get their credit card on file. And once it's on file, people are much more apt to uh, make a purchase. Because they don't have to go fetch that card, remember that number. All they have to do is click a couple of buttons and they're happy. Exactly. It's so instant. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We don't want to work for our uh, products. We want it to come now. Snap, snap, snap. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, Amazon knows that what a lot of people do is they'll put a bunch of stuff in their shopping cart. Then they have to make an account and then they have to put in their credit card. And that's where people just kind of abandon ship. So they've really become masters at uh, convincing people to carry on with the process. So, for example, I was listening to another show, uh, Windows Weekly, another podcast that I really enjoy uh, about Microsoft. And... They, uh, one of their sponsors is Amazon Audible, which is a service that sells audio books. Um, it's a subscription based service where you pay like $15 a month and you get one credit per month and every audio book costs one credit, or you can also purchase, uh, additional credits or purchase other, uh, other uh, audio books on there. So anyway, they're very aggressive with giving, um, free trials. I think I've used like four free trials for Audible, um, I opened up my Audible account many years ago, and I've used like two or three free trials, and I subscribed for a month or two and bought a couple as well, but then I canceled my subscription because it's expensive. Then, um, just for the heck of it, because um, Windows Weekly said if you go to audible.com slash windows, you get a free audiobook. So I gave it a try and uh, while I was logged in, and it said, sorry, this plan is only for new uh, for people creating new accounts. So I figured, okay, whatever, I, it was worth a try. So I closed the tab. Five minutes later, I got an email from Audible saying, um, why don't you rejoin Audible? We'd love to have you back. Why don't you take uh, three months for 99 cents? 
So that's like $45 worth of service for 99 cents that they're enticing me with. And of course, I'll go for it. They've already got my, my money on file too, but they just want to get me hooked on audiobooks again. They're giving away $45 of content yep. just because I might subscribe again, which is very aggressive. Yes, it is. And, and wonderful. Everyone wins. Mm -hmm, exactly. Everyone wins. And they can do this because they obviously have other people who are subscribed for $15 a month, which means that they can entice others back. That's right. I mean, it's similar to the uh, free-to-play MMO model as well, or to um, freemium uh, smartphone games, where like 95% of people play for free. They play a little, or they play a lot, or they play a ton, but they never pay a single thing. Uh -huh. Then there's like 4% of people who will pay between like $1 and $20 or so, and there's 1% of people who will pay a lot. They'll pay hundreds of dollars. They'll pay $1,000 just because they're really hooked on the game. And that's the that's what they like to do for entertainment in their lives. They like to get a leg up in their free in their favorite uh, games instead of going to the movies or something like that. It's your money and spend it however you want. Yep. So that's the model for those. They give away a service for free just fishing for the, the small percentage of people that will make it not only sustainable but profitable. Um, I guess it's harder... Well, Microsoft has been criticized in the past for being very compartmentalized and having these different disparate silos that kind of operate independently from each other and that they'll even kind of feel like they're competing with each other or they have some kind of animosity towards each other. One, one uh, product will be jealous of the budget of another project, for example. I don't know whether that's still true, but um, my understanding, I, I have a, a good friend who worked for Microsoft for a while and he corroborated this, is that that's, that really is what the culture is like and it's a little bit uh, cannibalistic. People, I don't know if that's the right word for it. It's like self-destructive, I guess. Self-sabotaging. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's just some, maybe that would be an example of like the short-sightedness of, uh, of uh, gimping this free service that really acts as the backbone to all of Microsoft's other online services. I want to give another example, actually, because I've started um, one of my favorite online services of all time is Google Play Music. I am a, a $10 a month subscriber to Google Play Music now. Um, they won me away from uh, eMusic. E -music. We used to pay about $35 a month to get... I forget how many songs that got us, like 85 songs or something. It was yeah, so inexpensive usually, for what we got, I suppose. Yeah, you, we usually got about two and a half to about three albums a piece, depending on what, you, what struck your mood and what you actually could find for your for our half of the money. We yeah, that's right. So, and those are DRM-free MP3s that were high quality and... Uh, Variable bitrate MP3s. That's right. And I mean, comparing it to buying music in a store, seven or eight albums for 35 bucks is a very good deal. Then, Unless, of course, you went to a used music store, but... even Well, even then, it, it was often cheaper than that as well, mm -hmm. which is, a, it was unbeatable for its time. But then things like Spotify came around, and, well, uh, and that interested me somewhat, but I was skeptical about the quality and about internet connectivity and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But then Google Play Music came around, first to the U.S., but then finally to Canada, and it's available in many countries now. And um, they didn't always have a streaming service, as far as I know, but what really enticed me about Google Play Music was that they allowed you to, well, it, they call it a music locker. You can upload your music to Google servers and stream it for free from any device, from any web browser or from your phone or from whatever kind of web-enabled de device you have, which is pretty cool because I, I uh, for many years, would run an MP3 streaming server on my home computer so that I could listen to my albums from home while I was at work. 
or sometimes on my phone. Um, but it involves like server administration, which is fun, but it's laborious. And if your internet is spotty at home, or if uh, someone's at home wanting to use the internet, then they might not appreciate you screaming like a 320 kilobit MP3 using up a lot of your uh, upload stream. Well, well, actually, it's not the streaming that was the problem. What the problem was with the the service was running the application and uploading the music itself. Oh well, uploading the music. music, not the actual server that you tried to run. Those. Oh well, I'm talking about two different things. Yeah. I used to use a, a home server called Subsonic. That was, was not a problem. Subsonic actually had minimal effect on the uh, home connection. Oh, that's nice to hear. It was the Google. It was actually uploading music to Google Music that right. caused it. That uh, that caused a huge clog. Yeah, that's right. The up the upstream saturation. The upstream saturation was so bad that downstream was non-existent. Yeah, that's right. Because in it's order to download, highway where it's normally uh, two lanes, it's normally four lanes across. But uh, there's a huge accident in three of the lanes, and you've been reduced to one lane. And there's a cop there, and he's only waving through this one side for the next hour. <laughs> that was that's that's what it was like. I suppose so. Well, yeah, well, the way um, TCP protocol works is that every time you download something, you upload a little thing saying, okay, I got it. So if you're busy uploading a bunch of stuff, then it kind of deprioritizes your ability to download things because you have less opportunity to tell the other side, yes, I got it, because they don't send you anything else until you confirm that you've gotten the first bit error-free. So now that we have a more powerful, uh, a faster upstream anyway, that's not an issue anymore. But it used to be that when we only had one megabit upload, when I would upload stuff to Google Music, we could not use our internet for anything else whatsoever. Yeah, so we would have to do it overnight. Yeah, it would disconnect us from Steam and stuff. Like, it would really cripple the connection. So I'd have to do it overnight. Uploading my music collection to Google Play Music for the first time took me, like, three weeks of overnight uploads, which was really something. Mainly because there were, there were a few days where you actually forgot to do it. That's why. That too. But, I mean, it was very slow. I, could, I would do, I don't know, a few hundred songs in a night. And I had like 30,000 songs or something in my uh, collection. I, I've ripped every CD that I've ever bought pretty much for better or for worse. So long story, well, I'm not, I won't say long story short. It's a long <laughs> story. I got all that stuff on Google Play Music and I stream it pretty effortlessly. It's a phenomenally good service. It's free of charge to listen to your own music. It's just awesome. Um, eventually, I decided to give various streaming services a try. I think Spotify was the first one. No, Google Play. I don't know who was the first one. We had Google Play and then we tried Spotify. Mm-hmm. And then we thought of others. We then we went without for a while, and then I believe I just opted out, and I went. I tried two anime streaming services. IMAC and one was Funimation, which I've since unsubscribed from. Mm. It's a good deal. It was it was pretty low price, but I'm sticking with Crunchyroll, which I like. It has a better uh, selection answer and uh, streaming and uh, bit rate for streaming. Mm-hmm. But getting back to music anyway, Google Play Music. I yeah. pay them the ten bucks a month now, and I can listen to anything. On their store, which is like 30, 30 million songs, something like oh, that. I think it's the same right library on. as Spotify, as far as I know. I like Google Play Music's interface a lot better than Spotify. Way better. Yeah, when I did try- use it during a trial, it did have a good interface and a good uh, streaming radio. Mm-hmm. I also, on Google Play Music, have bought an album. which I And so that was the first time I bought an album outside of uh, eMusic or, a f- or, a, or from a uh, brick-and-mortar store. Mm. 
Yeah. So, so I have all my music up on Google Play Music, and if I want to, I can click one button and download my whole music library as a single zip file, which is kind of frightening because that's got to be like dozens of gigs. But anyway, that's really handy. So I have a backup in full quality of my that music is library, so handy. and it's stored for free. Yep, it's so handy considering you know your propensity for killing hard drives. Yeah, no kidding. I'm I'm very serious about cloud-based storage now, which is what I love so much about OneDrive. But um, OneDrive has kind of a similar service, but for them, you only get, you know, anything that you upload counts against your storage quota. So I could only upload, like, you know, now users can only upload five gigabytes of anything and that's it. Whereas with Google, they have Google Drive, which gives you, <coughs> I forget how much, 15 gigs or something. And um, uploading your music doesn't count towards that. Likewise, for photos, they give you the option now. You can either upload your photos at full quality, which is up to like 18... 16- 16 megapixel, which is humongous. My phone camera is only 8 megapixel. And those are still huge when we put them on our computers. No, they're bigger. Yeah, they're higher resolution than our monitors are. And, um, or you can, uh, so yeah, you can do it up to 18 megapixel and it won't count against your quota. Or you can upload the original files, no matter how big they are, and it does count against your quota, which is reasonable. And uh, what's more, um, they now have a service, Google Play Books which allows you to upload EPUB, Mobi, and PDF files, and you can read them on the cloud, same as Google Play Music. You can read them on the web or on your phone, and uh, that doesn't count against your storage quota either. So just using those three services, Google Photos, Google Play Music, and Google Play Books, I stored 20, no, I stored 19 gigabytes of content for free in Google's cloud, that would have uh, counted against my quota on OneDrive. And I have an Android phone, so I'm already kind of invested in that ecosystem. So with uh, Microsoft foolishly reducing my uh, dependence on their cloud, they also reduced my dependence on all of their services as a whole. Yep, and drove you into the loving arms of Google. (laughs) Right. Oh, Google. Sorry, don't uh, mind me. Sheesh. Must have been that caffeine I've just been drinking. Oh, yeah, we should get ourselves some more. Well, um, (laughs) so I, uh, now, just for the heck of it, I'm trying Google Drive, which I've never liked at all. I don't like the interface. I hate Google Google, uh, Docs and all of their various Office Applications, I think they're really lame compared to Microsoft's. But Google Drive has a desktop sync client, just like OneDrive. So it creates a folder on my hard drive. It automatically downloads everything that I've uploaded to Google Drive, and anything I save into that folder will automatically get uploaded or synchronized with the cloud-based storage. So I'll give that a try. And it worked very quickly and just as well as OneDrive ever did. So why not stick with Google, I'm thinking. I'm giving it a try. So... Tough shit, Microsoft. That is a huge mistake that I think that they've made, and it's really going to drive people away from reliance on their uh, on their whole uh, infrastructure and on on their whole platform. Very stupid, I think. Yes, it is. They um, made that mistake, and now they can't back out of it. Unfortunately, that's right. I'm going to boil us some more water for tea. Do you want to tell our listeners about our uh, Cisco modem? Uh, what we Wolves? thought was a fix, and now it's woes again. Okay, no problem. Let me see. Where do we... Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, we made a call into our ISP. They uh, had to make an appointment 
for us with uh, Rogers because our ISP, although it's a third party, it uh, has it depends on the existing cable infrastructure laid by Rogers, who holds monopoly over it because of the way our internet laws work in Canada. So um, they made the appointment. They sent a guy in. Guy comes, barely speaks a lick of English. I'm surprised I could understand him. Um, comes in, takes a look at the cables, tests them, makes a couple of interesting replacements. We have coax cables running across our living room. Replaces a couple of the ends on them because previously we had a splitter, which was which dates back to when we had a cable tel, tel, t, to when we had uh, TV cables running across our uh, living room and into the bedroom. So with the with the, the splitter no longer required, he took it out, put in new cables, and then did the same thing for the uh, cable going into our modem. It looked like it was fixed, but then we've had uh, one outage since then, and, and well, it then, was good for about two weeks, right? Yeah, and then we had a couple of hiccups, and then one out, and then one outage. So more than one. We've had to reset our modem a few times. Yeah, which usually has never been a problem in the past. Resetting our modem. Usually we would, like, if we had to reset our modem with a previous modem, it would reset in, like, a minute or two. Yeah. But this modem takes five minutes, which is really annoying when you're in the middle of something. It oh. happened while we were on the podcast with Trolls once. We just disappeared without a trace, and for all he knew, <laughs> we had been eaten by carnivorous yetis. <laughs> carnivorous birds. Birds. Oh, they shut up. Isn't that lovely? Isn't it? Yes. So, we made a phone call. Um, What was the result of that one? So our modem, we have the Cisco modem, um, it's got problems. Um, it's like an integrated modem slash router. It has a four-port four gigabit uh, wired router on the back as well as uh, 802.11n wireless protocol, which is kind of the latest and greatest fancy, uh, fancy fast one. It's um, – number one, it has an issue which is doc well documented that it will occasionally drop the Wi-Fi connection and then just start up again a few minutes later without provocation, without anything in particular causing it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a well-documented issue, and TechSavvy tells us that they're waiting for Cisco to send them a firmware update, which they can push to all of their subscribers just over the internet without any uh, action on their part. Another issue, though, is we don't know if it's because of the cabling in our, in our apartment or if there's a flaw with our particular modem, if it's a dud, but every now and then... Both the Wi-Fi and the LAN connections will drop out, which means that not only can none of our devices access the internet at all, but even our two wired computers can't ping or talk to each other. Super, super annoying. So it tells us all of a sudden we'll be on the internet and out of nowhere it'll say that our network cables have been unplugged. Very, very frustrating. Very frustrating. So with this last call anyway, mm -hmm. um, the, they advised us to just plug in. They asked if we had an old router, and I said, yeah, we do. I was trying to avoid using it because this was a friggin' $200 modem we had to buy with an integrated router. Nice to only plug in one device instead of two. But we do have another router sitting around, an old D-Link. So she said that stability should be improved in general if we put our modem into bridged mode instead of routing mode, which disables the four Ethernet ports. And there's like a hardware switch on the outside of the modem, which allows you to turn off the two Wi-Fi radios. There's a 2.4 gigahertz and a 5.0 gigahertz Wi-Fi radio. So you can flip the switch and it turns those off. That's supposed to really help the stability of the internet connection. And then we just send the signal over to our other router. 
which is gigabit, and I don't think it has wireless N, but at least has wireless G. Yep. So yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So at least if we're uh, if we come to it, we can uh, just disable the uh, router aspect, which should hopefully which should hopefully uh, allow us to still have local uh, access, even if we don't have WAN access. Exactly. Well, hopefully we'll increase the stability enough that we can have internet connectivity. Mm -hmm. Like consistently, because yep. that's what we're freaking paying for. Yes, it's an expensive are. modem, and I expect a lot better from Cisco. It's really bullshit design. I'm pissed off at Cisco. They're they're known for good quality products, so I'm really yep. surprised. And, that it's so and isn't their primary focus uh, network hardware? Yeah, that's their bread and butter. That's what they do. Yeah, the other possibility, and it's just a possibility, and this is primarily hearsay. Hearsay. There's uh, ongoing construction in our neighborhood. There's actually a high a uh, I don't know how many fucking floors this monstrosity is going to be. It can be like... Uh, I think it's 40 stories or so. Yeah, they're building a 40-story condo on this street. Yeah, two doors away from us. Yeah, so away. there are people having their own cable issues on this street. They're primarily uh, TV subscribers, but it's... That's cable too, though. Yeah, it's, it's still cable. cable, but so they... Uh, they have to reboot their uh, cable boxes most almost uh, every day. In some cases, two or three times a day. Hey, you check on the water? Yep. Nikki's cabin. As a result of this construction. So it's a possibility that the construction is actually the uh, root cause of this. But I'm not inclined to believe it for our modem. So our modem does have problems. There well, modems are a lot more sensitive than cable boxes, I think. A cable box is easier for it to to pick up the stream again with with just a little hiccup or something. Mm -hmm. The modem, I think, I don't know, it just seems to shit itself whenever... I think we were right. fortunate enough to get the uh, the modem baby that has perpetual diarrhea. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> uh, I suppose we should move on before I make any more poop, poop jokes. Yes, let's do that, eh? Um... Oh, I want to send a shout out to two more podcasters. Uh, number one is Avi Hayun. I've mentioned him the last few podcasts now, but uh, I listened to his Das Games Pub, sorry, Das Games Hub show about um, Donald Duck's Playground by Al Lowe. And it was a very good show. It's really thorough in terms of uh, the different facts about uh, the, the way that the game is played and its kind of uh, historic significance. He talked about his own experience playing the game and what he likes and what he doesn't. He uh, has his little girl play it and uh, shares feedback from her, a, a girl who's used to playing like touchscreen tablet style games, having to play something with the mouse and with the keyboard. Or sorry, not with the mouse, because there's no mouse support, if I'm not mistaken, but with a keyboard and what that experience is like. It's very interesting. And of course, he's a, an intelligent, likable guy, so it's a really good show. And of course, I recommend that you check out uh, DOS Games Hub. The other show that I listened to a couple of weeks ago that I found really fascinating was Lost Treasures of Gaming. Um, which I've mentioned before. Their last episode was with a guy named Warren Robinette who made a game called Adventure for the Atari 2600. It's like a top-down, kind of a Legend of Zelda sort of a game, I guess you might say, but instead of uh, Link, there is like a big square. You're, <laughs> you're a square. Oh, but, kind of like us. Kind of like us, yeah, I suppose so. And like all you listeners. <laughs> so Warren Robinette is fascinating because he's the real progenitor of a lot of these uh, design philosophy, some of which that we still use a lot today. I think he was kind of like the granddaddy of what would become Zelda because of adventure, moving from room to room with the 
uh, you know, you go, you exit off the left side of your map of the map, and then you appear on the right side of a new map uh, that's only one screen large. Really interesting. So, I think programmers, uh, those of you who are programmers in particular, will enjoy his stories of uh, programming for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, which had four kilobytes of storage. Your whole game, text, music, graphics, everything had to fit within four kilobytes, which is like mind-boggling, isn't it? I know, but isn't that similar to the uh, demo, the demo scene where you had to fit your uh, demo into a certain uh, space of? Uh... It's true. That was a that was a fun challenge in the demo scene. They did have four kilobyte demos, but uh, back then they had a whole library of games, and they are all limited by four kilobytes of storage, which is incredible. So it's really cool to hear all of his various uh, stories about it. They kind of quip. Uh, the one of the hosts, Sid Bolton, quips that he tried to challenge himself by making a game like this. And because he's a professional programmer, he's in the habit of writing comments to describe blocks of code. And in the end, the comments themselves were like four kilobytes. <laughs> so that was a big no-no. So you really have to do this kind of nebulous, undocumented uh, code. All right, it's tea time. I'm going to go get our tea. you have anything you want to talk about in the meantime? Those last two notes there are mine. Ah, uh, yes. So, let's see. Do I have anything else I want to say? Um, no, I don't, because... What tea that you're having? Tea I'm having has caffeine in it. So, I'm going to be super annoying for the next two or three hours. For a change? Yeah, for a change. And on top of this, I've already had tea with caffeine, and I've had a monster. So, I'm nice and caffeinated right now. So, for those of you who are listening... This is me being super mellow. I can be much more annoying, especially after a caffeine binge. <laughs> so let's see. What's Brian going to bore you with when he gets back? Oh, well, he has his I Dreamed of Wired documentary on a bunch of mod modular analog synthesizers. Get out of my face, twit. <laughs> oh, it's boring to watch, and if you don't particularly... What, I don't get a tea bag? I get a bunch of fucking hot water? Oh, I thought you were going to keep your tea bag. Okay. <laughs> Bring me a new tea bag. I'm not reusing that slimy ass shit. Thank you. <laughs> and don't tea bag me. This ain't no MMO. <laughs> so while uh, we do this, I'm actually going to be. Uh, in the meantime, I'm uh, saturating our upload, our uh, upstream. Here, saturate this tea bag too. Thanks. By uh, uploading a bunch of comics to my. Uh, Google Bookstore. Oh, good. The Star Trek comics that I got from the Humble Bundle? Those are going to be next. I'm doing um, some undead comics. Uh, Walking Dead stuff I have. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So that's going to take a while. There's a huge... Yes, it will. Oh, well. So you're going to talk about your uh, boring documentary and oh, boring yeah. poor people? Oh, I Dream of Wires. Yeah. Uh, this was a really fun documentary. I watched it on Netflix. It's about uh, the history and the current state of analog modular synthesizers. So like vacuum tubes and cable, patch cables running from this to that and modulators and oscillators and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, if you're into synthesizer music, it's a really, really fun thing to watch. And they talk about like the two different manufacturers of synthesizers. I don't remember the name of one of them. Moog is the other one. Shoot, I can't remember the name of the other one now. Mm -hmm. And Moog... Moog uh, was uh, more popular because he added a piano keyboard to his, whereas the other one was more about making like sound textures as opposed to traditional music. 
So there are people who uh, are into both philosophies of synthesizers, and uh, they talk about like the Casios of the world and the Rollins of the world, and whether whether or not they were positive contributions to that whole scene. And uh, they talk about uh, I don't think they talk about Kraftwerk, but a lot of uh, similar bands to that. So a lot of stuff about America, some stuff about Germany. Very very enjoyable. Uh, documentary. I love the way that it was shot. The cinematography is really pleasant. There's a lot of like close-ups of, it looks like this kind of uh, robot forest sort of, the way mm -hmm. they zoom in on a synthesizer and show all the different uh, cables and plugs coming out of it and stuff. And uh, the, the, the soundtrack is really sort of textural as well. Some of it's musical, but some of it is just kind of synthesized sounds looping and repeating, and that sounds really cool and it fits very well with the theme. So I Dream of Wires, highly recommended. I do believe I remember uh, Anatoly, hi Anatoly, uh, mentioning that he enjoyed it as well. So I think it was his, his say-so that uh, that uh, influenced me to go watch it, and I'm happy I did. And uh, you also tried a different web browser this week, which oh, yeah. I remember glimpse, uh, looking over and thinking it was uh, quite pretty. I didn't get a chance to use it, but it looks uh, interesting, and Brian will tell you about it. He will? Yes, he will. Hey, Brian. Yeah. Talk about something. the web browser. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read about this on Slashdot. It's, you don't get this very often anymore. Slashdot said that a new web browser had just come out of, I think it's an alpha. I don't know if it's alpha or beta, but it's been like absolutely stable from what I've tried. It's called Vivaldi. I don't know what's up with the name. I don't know if that's like a... You know, I mean, we've got one called Opera as well, so I don't know what's up with this like classical music sort of a theme to it. But... Um, it's uh, it's a web browser. What can I say? It's it has, uh, it has tabs. It, you can pin tabs. It has. Uh, uh, it's based on the WebKit, or either WebKit or Chromia. I think it's the like the. It's based on the Google Chrome engine, which I think is Apple's WebKit, but has been modified. Hmm. Um, and it does some new stuff. It. Uh, I don't think it's going to have extensions. It may not have extensions. I'm just not sure uh, at this early stage. There aren't any right now. But their philosophy was that they wanted to embed a whole bunch of lightweight functionality that you would otherwise uh, have to add yourself in an extensible web browser that takes add-ons or extensions or what have you. I'm, t I'm guessing this is stuff like ad blocker. They So they don't have an ad blocker built in. I don't think we're, pro we're probably not going to see that. I did notice that um, Bing is the default search engine, so I don't know whether Microsoft may have uh, contributed money to this project, but it has some things like you can hover your mouse over a tab and it shows you a little um, visual preview of what that tab looks like before you click on it. That's kind of a nice thing. Um, the colors of the tabs, when you click on a tab, the uh, color that it changes to, um, it, sorry, the, the tab itself will change to a different color based on the predominant color of the content of the web page which is kind of a nice uh, way. It makes it a little more scannable. Mm -hmm. That um, is quite nice. It has, next to the tab bar, it has a trash can icon, which shows you a list of all the recently closed tabs. That's kind of a nice little touch as well. Um, Instead of having to uh, open up your history. That's right, or press Control-Shift-T to open up your, uh, preview, your, last, your last closed tab. Uh, what else? It has mouse gestures like Opera, which I haven't seen for a long time. So, like, you hold down your right mouse button and you go left and it goes back. Or you hold down the right mouse button and move right and it goes forward. And then some other ones, too, for, like, opening a new tab or closing a tab. I haven't seen those in a while, but those were always a nice natural way to control your, your web browser. 
Hmm. Speaking um, of browsers, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was just uh, playing in Firefox, <laughs> and I noticed that the newest version of Firefox has these has an icon that looks like a speaker. Um, and I didn't even intend to. I clicked it, and it appears to mute it. Yeah, that's right. They they uh, borrow that functionality from Chrome. That's a really nice feature. Just, I think what Chrome has is it tells you whether a tab is making noise or which tab is making noise, but Firefox in their latest version, they just updated it yesterday. It was in the beta for a while before that. You can click that speaker icon and it mutes the tab without closing the tab, mm -hmm. and which is really nice, yeah. but I didn't like that for pinned tabs. You can like right-click a tab and say pin tab and it moves it to the left side of the tab bar and it's shrinks the size of the tab so that it's only the size of the icon instead of the description. I so, noticed that as well. It's really convenient for me and my uh, stumble button habit. It is. But if it's one of your pin tabs that's making noise, I noticed then that. It's, it, yeah, it's kind of hard to go to that tab without muting it. I didn't like that. The mute the mute button is a little too big on the pin tabs. Mm -hmm. But it's a, that's really handy. I like that feature. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we were talking about browsers and features. And oh, I just sure. happened to uh, think that this was a particularly handy one. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I don't even have anything playing this tab, but there is the uh, – but I do have but – but it appears that there is a bit, possibly a video in this tab I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And so there is no sound coming out, but oh, I can nice. mute anyways. Yeah, because Bianca is the queen of she, – she loves the stumble upon service, which is just like you give it your preferences and you press the stumble button and it's – takes you to a random website with that category. So she's the queen of pressing her stumble button and then turning off her monitor and walking away. And then the stumble button loads up a video or something which players over her speakers <laughs> while she has no way to deal with it. So thanks for that. Oh, you're very welcome. So anyway, that's enough about Vivaldi, I guess. It's, it's a surprisingly good browser for what it is, especially in its early stage. It's very attractive. It's got tons of configuration options, more than Chrome or Firefox, which really impresses me a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, it's kind of fun to play with. I would recommend that you give it a try. I've uh, got it in the show notes. It's, it's really nice. We'll see whether it goes anywhere, whether the world is big enough for another web browser. Maybe we have enough, but competition is always good. Yep. Okay, so what have you? And then I talked about what we play this week, but I don't. I get the feeling we really haven't played anything. <laughs> yeah, geez. Well, we played a lot of Binding of Isaac this week. Yes, for those of you wondering why we did Afterbirth, the new expansion or rather DLC for Isaac just came out this week. Yeah, and it came out. Well, yeah, it came out. I think just before our podcast last week, but we played it extensively since yeah. then. And. I got a new game. This I'm, I got a game that I pre-ordered months ago. Yes. Call of Duty Black Ops 3. Cod Blops. Yeah. So far, I have no idea what the fuck this story is supposed to be about. All I know is I suddenly have cybernetic implants again after my arms are ripped off by some kind of robot. Didn't that happen in one of the other Call of Duties? You're thinking of Advanced Warfare. I know my arms ripped off when I'm rescued. And it's not by a robot. It's it's because I'm trying to help my friend who gets crashed out or something and inevitably uh, dies in Korea. And so my arms ripped off. I'm walking around with you know this stub on one of my on my uh, left side. Mm -hmm. And then I get my cybernetic implant from uh, Douchey McEvil Wad. <laughs> okay. But yeah, this in this case, my basically all my limbs have been ripped off and. Um, now I have no idea what the hell is going on. I appear to be in some sort of simulation where I left off in Cod Blops. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, I can run across walls and, um, whoa, it's really interesting. 
is I can choose whether I'm male or female in this game. So I picked a female character just because I'm so sick of hearing fucking men talk in these games. It's so rare to find female soldiers in any of the Call of Duty games, especially when you consider that some of the more recent ones are set after in the uh, in the late twenties and uh, in postmodern centuries. Yeah, I think it might have been Call of Duty 2 that had the first female soldiers, not playable, but the first female soldiers in a first-person shooter game. Mm-hmm, but not predominantly. Not predominantly, but it was the Russians. They had lots of women in their army, and that's represented in Call of Duty 2, which is kind of cool. That And that is historically correct for those of you wondering. Oh, yeah. It was quite common. Grinder. Yeah. It was quite common for the Russians to put women on the front lines and to have them uh, in their in the Air Force as well. It was a uh, principle of communism that uh, men and women were equal in many respects. Mm-hmm. There was still gender inequality in Soviet Russia, but they did have the but they did give women more freedom than Western women got for the most part. Mm-hmm. That said, I still think that uh, Activision or Treyarch could have put more female soldiers in their previous games where they, they were set outside of the Cold War and the First World Wars. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was nice to have a female protagonist and I actually talk. I'm not some kind of fucking mute like Gordon Freeman. Mm, that's nice. Or Chell. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I talk. I take orders. I shoot shit. I'm happy. Mm, that's good. Doesn't look significantly different from the other Call of Duties, but you shoot these like Terminator-style robots now I've seen. Yeah, you shoot robots, I get an awesome gun, and I can, uh, and because of my cybernetic implants, I can control turrets, which naturally have, I can interface with them at a distance, it's weird. But yeah, I can control turrets and then shoot the bad guys with their own weapons. Mm-hmm. They have that in other Call of Duties as well, but that's, true. But mixes it up. It's more like, I got these bizarre kind of, telekinetic powers where I can reach out, hold my hand, and then I take control of the stupid uh, androids. It's oh, weird. that's interesting. Yeah. I'm guessing it's because of these cybernetic implants my character gets after having all my limbs ripped off. Hmm. So, limbs ripped off, take commands, and I shoot shit. I'm happy. So, well, that's uh, good. Oh, and if you're, if any of you are interested in this game, I'm not, but uh, greenmangaming.com, I believe, has it for 20% off or something. Yeah. They, Green Man Gaming, they, they always have the latest and greatest games like for aggressive sales more than anyone else. Yes, and when we pre-ordered, we got it with a uh, discount as well. Yeah, exactly. And so I got a bunch of pre-order content, which I don't give two shits about. Right. Usually the pre-order content for Call of Duty is a, is a multiplayer-oriented. Oh, and by the way, speaking of that game, I heard on the PC Gamer podcast something that they were very surprised about, as was I, is that Call of Duty Black Ops 3 is... Uh, sometime after the new year is going to have mod support, which is extremely, it's pretty common for a lot of smaller shooters. And it used to be very common in all shooters, but I don't think Call of Duty has ever supported it, or at least not since like Call of Duty 2. Probably because they didn't want cheaters, which is understandable in a multiplayer environment and you don't want people having a distinct advantage over others. Well, maybe. Well, it's cheaters or there's, there's support and stuff too. I mean, usually the host of a server can decide whether mods are allowed or not. And if a mod is allowed, then it applies to everyone, not just one person. True. So by mods, they don't mean like interface mods, really. They mean like mapping or mutators or modifiers to the way the game is played for everyone, not not to one individual person, really. Mm-hmm. So it's a really rare thing, and they were, they were uh, 
they're very harsh about Call of Duty games. They they say that Call of Duty games are amazing to look at, and as games themselves, they're like okay, they're entertaining, but they're really not imaginative or very different. They're really pushing the industry forward in any way, except for budget and production values. But uh, they were heartened to see mod support re-added to this series mm -hmm. because just supporting a game, uh, the technical support of a game that supports. Uh, custom content is so much more difficult. Yep. And also, um, they talked about Team Fortress 2, uh, Valve's game, which hasn't really changed in 10 years, except that it's always had mod support, and it has a very active community to this very day. And that was another peculiar thing, because Call of Duty is like an annual, an annualized series. You get a new one at pretty much at Christmas time every single year. So it's not really in their best interest to have people playing one game for more than one year. No, it isn't. So it's, it's generous that they're allowing this for this game. So good for them. I got to give them credit where credit's due. It's possible that they may have done this so that they could uh, get more, they could buy more time before between games. It's possible. I forgot to mention that mod support is for PC only, not for the console versions where they sell the majority of their copies. Mm. So that's very interesting. Yeah. I don't know what their motives are, if it's just altruistic or what, but good for them. That's, that's really nice to see. Yes, it is. But then it means that uh, PC gamers may not necessarily be able to play with their friends if they uh, even have one mod that modifies anything. Oh, the way it usually works in multiplayer shooters is that the mods are chosen by the server host. Um, dedicated servers, I don't know whether it supports them, but they're becoming increasingly rare. Usually someone will host a game using their home internet connection. Mm -hmm. uh, usually the host will upload mods to anyone who joins the game at the time of connection while other people are playing. Like, the internet is fast enough now. I think that started with Quake, as a matter of fact, with the dedicated servers. You would join a server, and it would download all these, like, Futurama sound effects and stuff that the server host wanted everyone to be hearing, which was kind of neat. Or True. if an individual character had, like, a custom skin to texture their their uh, their models, then uh, when you join the game, you would upload your skin to the server, and then the server would up upload your skin to all other players so that they could see what you, your custom look looked like. Mm -hmm. True, but uh, would this still happen to consoles? Would they get this no. information? Consoles don't get any mods. Only PC gets the modded version, which is just cool. That's really cool. True. Good so, for them. So, the new, so let's say you're the PC, you're, the, you're hosting and you're on PC, all your friends have uh, consoles. How, how would that work then? You would no longer mm. be able to play with your friends. It's very rare for cross-platform multiplayer. Usually, console people cannot play with PCs, and Xbox people cannot play with PlayStation people. Hmm. That's just by design. There were a few games that did that. There was a game... I think it was based on the Shadowrun uh, kind of cyberpunk. Uh, it might have just been called Shadowrun, as, uh, as I recall. And I believe it was when... This was, uh, one of, it was the first third-party um, DirectX 10 game when Vista had just come out. So that was already a, a controversial thing because nobody wanted to buy Vista and this game required it because that if you wanted DirectX 10, you had to get Vista. It wasn't compatible with uh, Windows 7. Yeah, I remember that was controversial. Mm -hmm. So that game uh, had cross-platform play between PC and console, between PC and Xbox, which was very, very rare. And they had, well, they had to do some... Go ahead. It wouldn't surprise... It shouldn't, I'm surprised that Windows doesn't allow more cross-platform action between Windows computer, Windows desktops and uh, Xbox, seeing as how they're both Windows, most Microsoft products. Oh, sure. There's no technological reason why you can't. The reason is that 
when you put people on uh, with uh, gamepads into the same first-person shooter arena as people with a keyboard and mouse, keyboard and mouse murders them every single time. A person with moderate skill on keyboard and mouse can can pretty reliably beat an expert with a gamepad. Just because keyboard and mouse, you can turn faster and you can aim faster. With a gamepad, you can only, like with an analog stick, you can only turn like 20 degrees a second or whatever it is, 30 degrees a second. Mm. With a mouse, you can whip your hand over as fast as you want and turn as fast as you want. It's like the old days of when I used to play uh, Doom for the first time uh, in multiplayer. I was still playing Doom with just the keyboard. I would turn with my arrow keys and I would shoot with the control button. And the people using the mouse would destroy me every single time because they could turn faster than I could. And that's all there was to it. So Shadowrun tried some experimental stuff. They tried... Um, giving auto-aim to gamepad players. Maybe they already had auto-aim. That's a very typical thing for gamepad shooters is to have some degree of auto-aim. What they also tried was um, nerfing the mouse control a little bit so that you could only turn so fast with the mouse. That really infuriated people because it does not feel natural. And I think in the end, they just segregated console and PC like every other game because it just didn't work out. So it's a really hard thing to balance. I think the most interesting combination of console and PC play, I don't even know if this happened in the end because I kind of lost track of it. Um, the studio CCP, who makes EVE Online, they were going to make a, sh a first-person shooter game. And I think it was just for console, and the console people would play the first-person shooter game, and then like the outcomes of battles would affect corporations in the PC MMO. There's like two games where the outcome of one round affects the other game. Very interesting idea. Yes, it is. It's still unfortunate that there's no cross-platform, but understandable. The console, the console fags would cry. <laughs> Precisely. I think they did. <laughs> that also goes hand-in-hand hand with um, data that I read from Valve about uh, Left 4 Dead 2. Valve, if you go to Steam, they have... Let me see if I can find it while I'm talking. But they publish information about uh, the Half-Life 2 episodes and about... I don't know if they publish it about Left 4 Dead, but they, um, for I example... I they would have. It seems like it's one of their games. It's popular. It would. I just don't know if they chose to publish it. I don't know if I can find this on short notice, but um, you can uh, see information about... like They, they have these top-down simplified versions of the Half-Life 2 Episode 1 and 2 maps, and it shows a heat map, which illustrates where people died the most often. And then they have pie charts that say people playing on easy died this many times, medium this many times, hard this many times, and uh, other statistics. And so that really helped them to balance out the game and to decide, like, is this hard? Is this medium? Is this easy? Um, it's the tools that they used while they were beta testing the game, but then they opened it up for everyone to see just out of general interest. Mm -hmm. And so they did some similar stuff for Left 4 Dead, just so that I guess they could um, make adjustments in their patches, but they published that information as well. And they compared the console versions with the PC versions. And I think, uh, I think PC and console liked melee weapons equally, but the favorite long-range weapon of console players was the uh, automatic, the fully automatic machine gun. Whereas on PC, the favorite long-range weapon was the sniper rifle. So that also goes to show how the, the gamepad is more of a spray-and-pray kind of a gameplay, whereas mouse and keyboard is a little more precise and methodical. Oh, it's t I, mean, I can't use... For that reason, I can't use gamepads at all for that. For shooters? I hate yeah. it. I can't stand it. I remember I, trying I put up to with do it, it on... at the Halloween party we went to at the... Uh, 
at uh, Sid Bolton's. Oh, at the museum. Yeah. What did we play that was a first-person shooter? Oh, uh, it was some really hokey PS2. <gasps> oh, that's right. We played House of the Dead. Yeah. Which was... And that 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 is a genre, I guess, known as a rail shooter because you can move your reticle around the screen, but the background moves without your input. Yeah, that's that's something different, but it's similar. But I remember just not being able to control my uh, aim very well, and I, but I, but give me a mouse and keyboard and and a sniper rifle, and I do pretty, and I can and I can get bang on headshots. Oh yeah, Anatoly, uncharacteristic, and uncharacteristically for him because it's not a DOS game, but uh, he. Mentioned how much he enjoys playing Virtual Virtua Cop by Sega on the PC, and so do I. I don't remember whether that game actually supported a light gun or not, but it was originally an arcade light gun game where you would like shoot at the screen with a gun in your hand. And for Dreamcast, I have that on Dreamcast. I have a light gun for Dreamcast, and that was really fun to play with a light gun. There was a PC version, which may or may not have supported a light gun, but it also supported uh, using the mouse. And so you have like a crosshairs on the screen and you move your mouse around and you click to shoot. And it was so easy with the mouse. It's so, you can aim very quickly and very precisely. So you like never hit hostages by accident and you hit everyone. You get a bonus for shooting a gun out of someone's hand. You can shoot the gun out of everyone's hand like effortlessly. So, and it's still fun, even though it's super easy. It's like really hokey, B-movie, idiotic uh, uh, gameplay and story and all that. Or story, I should say. The gameplay is fun. It's genuinely fun. And that game had physics and stuff where you can shoot glass and it would shatter. Anyway, that was another example of mouse and keyboard are sometimes precise to a fault because they undermine the challenge of a game. Yes, they do. And that's when you turn up the difficulty. Yeah, even that didn't do much in that game. Hmm. I think, well, in Virtua Cop... Uh, there's like a, a target sort of a thing that appears over someone who's slowly aiming his gun at you, and you can speed that up a little bit by choosing a harder difficulty. Mm. Less time between them seeing you and firing. What have I played this week? Um, didn't you do this Battleborn? Uh, oh, yeah, I did that? I did play a closed, a closed technical test of Battleborn, which is going to be the next major game by Gearbox. I signed an NDA, so I'm not supposed to talk about it. Ah, okay. So I'm not going to. I'll, I'll talk about it later. I'll be a good boy. I, I really appreciate being invited to a closed beta test, so I yeah. don't want to... Okay, I didn't realize that you had signed that. Yeah, that's okay. You you have to, otherwise they don't let you play. Of course. Um. Oh, I have been playing a little bit of Guild Wars 2. Yep, with the uh, Heart, of Th Heart of Thorn or whatever. What's it called? Heart of Thorns? Yeah. Something like that, I don't know. Um, haven't been playing the new content all that much. I've been kind of like, I've made a new character and I've been playing a little bit on an old character and we did a little bit of the new areas together. Yeah. I like it okay. I, um, uh, I struggled to find a new waypoint. I got it finally realized after realizing it was under fucking ground. Stupid game. Yeah, they've improved the interface a little bit. So I don't want to talk too much about Guild Wars 2, but what I will say just kind of fundamentally about that game is uh, the philosophy they have about cooperative multiplayer. Mm -hmm. um, That's a in, good one. In most MMOs, like in uh, World of Warcraft, for the most part, until recently where they learned lessons from Guild Wars 2 and borrowed them, um, in most MMOs like World of Warcraft or in Lord of the Rings Online or something like that, people who are you know your, your peers, the people who are in your faction, other player characters... Um, there's a finite number of resources in the world. And by finite, I mean, like, they'll come, they'll respawn infinitely, but 
if you uh, if you find like a mining node, for example, you run up to a rock and you use your pickaxe on it, it disappears. And so two people will run towards the same mining node and only one person will successfully get it and the other person will kind of go, oh, and have to go find another one. Um, ditto for missions where you have to kill a specific person. If three people have the same mission, uh, they'll all run towards the guy and usually whoever hits that person first gets credit for the kill and the other people, the, that, that enemy's health bar turns gray, meaning that they're ineligible for any credits and they have to sit around for one or two or five or ten minutes waiting for the enemy to re respawn. Um, it's a problem that is solved by having strangers group up together. Like uh, you'll, you'll see three people waiting around. You can just invite them to a group and all kill them in the same group. But that never happens. People are not very sociable. And me, me as well. I just, I'll play solo. I, I'll, if I can choose to, I play solo. So that's what MMOs are usually like. Guild Wars 2 came around and it's, not only kind of uh, eases it so that you can play with other people without having to compete with them, but it actually incentivizes you to uh, collaborate and to assist other people, even if you're not in the same party as them. And, and an example of this is if somebody dies or falls in combat, there's like two stages. You fall in combat, but you're still able to fight back like you have a last win. And someone can help you as you're fighting for your last win. Or if you die, someone can actually resurrect you by clicking on you without having to use a resurrection spell. And do you get experience for uh, helping someone back up or resurrecting them? Yeah, they kind of give you experience for just about everything that you can do in this game. So whether you're killing an enemy or picking uh, herbs or mining, uh, mining rocks... Or if you are... Crafting. Uh, yeah, there's crafting, there's exploring, like finding uh, vistas and other uh, things in the environment that are on your map that you have to do these little kind of platforming, Mario-style jumping puzzles to get to. Um, or, yeah, resurrecting another player. You get little bits of experience for all those things. Um, and as I mentioned before, with the example of a mining node, if you mine a rock... It disappears from your screen, but it remains on everyone else's. So it's not uncommon to see four different people run towards the same rock and all of them bring out their pickaxes and you'll be done mining your thing and it'll disappear. But the other people are still mining away at what on your screen is just like a useless little... Nub. Like a nub. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're my useless nub. Oh, you promise? Oh, I promise. You can mine me anytime, darling. <laughs> so that's, that's a cool thing. Also, um, if you have a mission to kill someone in particular... Um, you can have 10 different people, none of whom are grouped up with each other, all attacking the same guy, and everybody gets full credit for having killed him as long as they hit him once. Yep. But what uh, makes it, but what sets it apart, it, but you, everyone does get rewarded based on their contribution. So if it's an area that's been flagged with a champion or a veteran or I guess, I guess special kind of boss, the people who are there from the outset and, and contribute the most, even the, not the most damage, but contribute to the most time, an effort. I think it's, yeah, yeah. Because it's not damage, because as long as, cause let's say you... Well, it depends on what the objective is. Mm -hmm. Like, there's two kinds of things you can do, I think. There's quests where you have to, you yourself have to do a certain amount of thing, and then you yourself win. Yeah. And then there's, like, world objectives, yeah, where you just kind events. of happen across one, mm -hmm. and it lasts until it's, the objective is completed collaboratively. Yeah. yeah, that's the one I was talking about, is the world event. Yeah. And so you get a reward proportionate to your contribution efforts. So if you're there from the outset, even if you, even if you've died, you're more likely to get the, a higher reward 
than somebody who comes in at the end. Yeah, gold, silver, bronze, depending on how much you've contributed. Yeah. Sometimes, without even realizing, if you run through the path of one of these events, kill a couple of things and run off, it'll, it'll pop up saying, oh, this event's complete and you got a bronze medal. Although I don't think you get any credit. I don't think you get any reward for the bronze medal because that means that you just didn't do a single thing. No, it means that you had minimal contribution. Right. But, I mean, if you just happen to run through an area and then it says you – and so no, the other you, people have completed it, I don't think you get any reward. No, not just running through. If you've brought in like – let's say that the, the objective was to bring a bunch of bunch, – a bunch of baskets of grapes to this one person. If you brought like two baskets but everyone else has brought like ten, you'll get a bronze medal and you get that. Not just running through the area. Oh, but even so, like I've I've gotten bronze medals for things I didn't know I was participating in before. Mm-hmm. It said I got a bronze medal, but I just don't get any reward. I think it depends on the type of a of, of a challenge it is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like if it's one where you have to actually deliver things somewhere, then if you didn't deliver any, that you won't be aware that anything had even happened. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a cool thing, anyway. There's a finite number of like quests in an area that you will complete before you can move to the next one. But while you're doing those, these little world events will pop up and you can do them optionally if you want to. And they will and they will always return to the same spot. So you can do them as many times as you want. Yeah, that's right. Although they don't return for a while and they're kind of dynamic where let's say uh, one of these world events is that uh, an outpost is under attack. If you successfully defend the outpost, then uh, the outpost looks like it's all fixed and it's populated with people and maybe there will be a follow-up mission where you have to deliver supplies from that or an urgent message by escorting someone from one area to another. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't successfully defend that outpost, then it'll look all destroyed and it'll be all full of enemies. And then a follow-up uh, quest will occur where you have to clear the enemies out of that outpost. To reclaim it. That's right. So it's kind of, they, they call those like living world quests. And it's great. It really is great. It makes you feel like you're making an impact, at least for a while. It's not completely heartless and without any feedback. Mm-hmm. And if you're in an area where major events are happening, you'll, you'll be aware that they're happening with the opportunity to go participate and uh, help out. So even if you're not a strong player, let's say you have shitty equipment, you can still make contributions and participate and then eventually get better rewards for your efforts. That's right. And conversely... Unlike other MMOs, like in WoW, for example, if you are a maximum level character, which is level 100, and you go to a previous level where everyone is level 30, you'll just smack everything in a single hit because you're a level 100 and they're level 30. However, in uh, Guild Wars 2, if you are level, the maximum level is 80. Thank you. If you go down to a level 30 area, you are scaled down to like level 30 or 31 or 32 or so. Your gear stays at the same level that it was, and so you'll still be quite powerful, but not exponentially more powerful than everyone else around you. So it's actually still challenging content, and if you want to go play with your friend who is 50 levels lower than you, you can both play together and both contribute fairly equally, which is fantastic. You basically have the equivalent of best in slot for that area, so you'll do mm. significant damage, but you still have to actually <laughs> make sure you don't die. It's not a face roll. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate that so much because invariably when well, Bianca and I are both subscribed to WoW, which she is right now and I'm not because mm-hmm. I got tired of it for a while, but um, we'll look through our list of characters. I'll say, I feel like playing with you. Let's look through our characters and see who we can play with. And of course, we have our maximum level characters, and of course, we can always make a new character. But sometimes you're sick of the end areas, you're sick of the starting areas, you want to just 
contribute together uh, to something intermediate. So she'll say, oh, I have a level 24 and a level 72. How about you? And I'll say, oh, I have a level 38 and a level 51. So we'll just say, oh, oh well, I guess we can't play together. Whereas in Guild Wars 2, doesn't matter who you are or what level character you want to play with, you you, uh, you can always scale yourself down. Mm -hmm. If you're level 5 and you're going to a level 70 area, you're going to get swatted like a little mosquito. Yep. But you can always scale yourself down so that it's a reasonable challenge wherever you go. Yep. Very, very smart and a great way to keep content relevant. In, in uh, WoW, if you outlevel an area, there's no challenge. And you can finish it if you're a completionist, but it's just boring. You'll, you're, you're going to win. But in Guild Wars 2, there's a whole bunch of areas. I don't know how many maps there are. Dozens and dozens of quest areas. And if you're maximum level, you can redo or you can you can complete any of the areas that you missed on the way. And it'll still be a challenge for you. Yes. It makes a ton of content. It'll be a challenge, but not if you were that level in the gear that you would have had at that level. You would, you'd have a better chance at success because you have your uh, nice high-end gear. And so you can... Uh, you have a better chance of survival is, is, is the difference. Yeah, a little bit. It, it, it uh, makes sure that you don't feel like all of your work was worthless, but it also makes sure that the people that you're teamed up with don't feel like they're useless if they're playing with you. And that they're being carried. Yeah. So I guess the last thing I want to mention about Guild Wars 2 is that now that the expansion is out, the base game is free of charge, which is so cool. And there are literally hundreds of hours of, of like content to enjoy in that base game. Go and play Guild Wars 2. It's very, very, very good. Even if you don't care to team up with anyone else or if you've traditionally not enjoyed other MMOs, it's just such a good game to either smash around or to go exploring or whatever. Like There's progression for exploring and crafting and fighting. And if you don't feel like doing... And, and even more so above and beyond that, um, in WoW you'll get a quest and it says, kill 14 of these guys. And in Guild Wars, um, you'll get a quest, and it says, you have this progress bar, and if you kill these guys, or pick these flowers, or bring uh, water to these cattle, or do this other thing, you can do any of those things, and they'll all make the progress bar go up. So if you don't feel like fighting, just complete the quest in this other way. If you don't feel like fighting, entertain the cow. <laughs> yeah, that is a quest, isn't it? You have to make the, ca the, the calves love you. Yeah, you have to make the cows happy by dancing for them. So I love that, because... In uh, in any uh, RPG, you're invariably given some quest that you just don't really feel like doing, that you avoid doing, because you don't want to do that task. It's grindy or it's monotonous or whatever. In Guild Wars 2, there's four or five or six different ways to, to surpass that one quest. So if you're bored of doing one activity, just do some other activity. Or if there's too many mechanics for one activity, then just do the easier thing. Exactly. So smart. Great, great design. Really fresh ideas to reimagine the MMO. Okay, so I think we've uh, babbled on enough about uh, various things. Let's move on to this week's topic. Yes. This is this was actually my idea, and I'm uh, rather proud of it. Emergent Gaming. For those of you who are wondering, Emergent Gaming is nonconformist gaming, where you have a game that you can play the conventional way according to what the developers and designers want, or you can play it how you feel like playing. The best example of this is, hmm, 
Well, I'd want to say this. I'd want to say the Sims because it's a sandbox game. Mm-hmm. Sims basically can be played any way you want. You can be completely hands-on, be and micromanage every damn aspect of your Sims' lives, or completely hands-off and let them implode on their own stubbornness. It's basically, that's a that's an example for merchant gaming. You can play it however you want. The, Although the Sims have, although there are certain things that you need to do to properly survive, such as paying your bills, eating, showering, sleeping, um, not neglecting your kids, fulfilling social needs, and all these other things, you can choose not to do any of that stuff. If you micromanage your Sim, you can force them to suffer. Mm-hmm. You can just play however you want. You don't have to have a real job. You can uh, have your Sim be a painter. This is essentially the embodiment of emergent gaming. It's playing the game how you want, not how the developers or designers or producers envision the game being played. Yeah, that's right. Well, sandbox games in general are conducive to emergent gameplay, where they'll have, as you mentioned, like a, a kind of a base of rules or mm-hmm. conditions that have to be met in order for you to keep playing the game. Yeah. But, and The Sims, I would say, is less supportive of emergent gameplay over time because they give you little incremental tasks and it gives you these little rewards for doing it. Whereas the first Sims games, though the first Sim game in particular, I guess you're, you just want to stay alive. And then if you're playing the game and having fun, then you're winning the game. There's no particular end game that you're playing towards. There's no one way to win the game. There's no 50 ways to win the game. You just say, I, my goal is to be a repulsive slob who, has a, a minimum wage job and struggles for his whole life. And if you do that, then you've won the game because that's your own goal that you've set. Well, that's emergent gameplay is to kind of ignore the, the, the greater goals of the game or to make your own, make your own fun outside of the construct. The constri- yeah, and that would be, for starts. example, the um, the idea of just creating an asylum with these people who don't get along and just letting them do whatever they want and only occasionally interfering <laughs> when you can make them a little more miserable. That's my favorite one that you've done, I think. Your favorite, my favorite example of how you've done emergent gaming in this gameplay in The Sims. Mm-hmm. Bianca would make like six characters, and they're all very unpleasant people <laughs> who have like a chip on their shoulder, and their their personality traits are in conflict with the those of their housemates. She'd make all these people, <laughs> and then there'd be like six people, and she'd make three beds and <laughs> one bathroom, and then would say, okay, go. Like she would she would create the game and start the game and then take her hands off the controls and just it would be watch. A, it would be basically a bachelor pad with three beds and the bathroom would not be separated. The shower would not be separated. The kitchen would not be separated. Everything would be in one nice big room. That's right. And it's like musical chairs. There's not enough resources for the number of people that need them. And then she would just take her hands off the control and watch it like a TV show. And it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Because especially, like, the, the acting, like, the, the reactions of The Sims are so caricatured and, like, overblown. So they overreact to everything. It's really, really funny. Oh, and then they set fire to themselves. That's the best part of all is when there's always, like, one person. No matter how many people you have, there's always one person who goes, I'm going to make myself mac and cheese. Ah, I say kitchen to the fire to the kitchen. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, that's right. And yeah, if you're if you set fire to the kitchen, the stove becomes inoperable until you replace it. And uh-huh. sometimes you just don't. Oh, I never replace it. <laughs> uh, they break the toilet. They break the sink. They break the shower. They break everything. And then they're basically stuck living on uh, squalor central. Yes, yeah, so they're stuck on anything that doesn't require a stove, and they live in squalor. 
and they get so miserable that they all kill each other. <laughs> I think my favorite of all was when you made one character who had the technophobe trait. And every there would be a bunch of people like peacefully, happily watching television, and the technophobe would run, would walk past the television, and he would like scream at the television and swear at it, and then just mutter to himself while he walked through the hall. It was very funny. Yeah, I deliberately made like two people who loved the TV and were couch potatoes. Yep. The other one I liked that you did was you bought an empty lot and you put like four walls in like a two space thing and you put a toilet and a door and that's it and a bed outside. Yeah. And the person lived outside and shut inside. And that was it. That was a fun one. And they got along very well like that. Yep. Other one, other times I've, uh, I got, oh yeah, this was good. In the newest one, they have bunk beds. So I created... A thing with all bunk beds, and they're the most uncomfortable pieces of garbage there are. All right, but you can fit a lot of people in a small area. Mm -hmm. And so I do the maximum, which is eight. So, oh, was this the one where you like had six six bunk beds that, or no, three bunk beds that could hold two people each, and then one really comfortable bed? Yeah. And then you would see who would get the comfortable bed that day. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, it just this is just these are just great ways to amuse yourself. And interesting to see uh, how these little imaginary people react to your season. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had fun once kind of uh, kind of playing like a homeless person where I bought a house, but I never went there. Or I would stop my sim from going there. And I would sleep on park benches and I had no money. I would go to a park and like pick apples from a tree and that would be all I would eat. Um, and if I needed money, I would like walk around the town looking for... Uh, fancy rocks you can find like different elements in rocks like little globs of <laughs> platinum or diamonds or something like pretty well hidden around the map at any one time especially if you go out into the forest or into like a mountainous area and uh, this was in sims 3 they still have that in sims 4 don't they yeah. um, and you can sell those and get a little bit of money for that that was really really fun you, just uh, seeing the effect of yourself and of the people around you you just be this Horrible, hungry, poor, smelly man. And that's a, a really fun way to play The Sims. It, it pushes you in the direction of, like, consumerism. You want a big house, a bigger house, bigger house. You want fancier clothes and yep. a better television, and you want to decorate your house. But you don't have to play that way. You can reject all of that. Yeah, but what's, re what's really fun is you can actually create in Sims 4 a lot that looks entirely like a park, and it's, and it's your house. Say that again, sorry? You can create your house so it looks like just like a park in this uh, wealthy neighborhood. You can just live there. Mm. Oh, I never thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah, so you still go to your lot, but it's completely useless, and you're stuck outside. Pardon me, I'm going to copy Sims 4 from you. You just talked me into playing it. <laughs> what was... Now, with the uh, previous ones, I believe it was two that was uh, the most doable for this. I'm... Hmm. I forget now. So, how about uh, we just move on and actually talk about better of uh, less sandboxy examples of emergent gaming. Where the hell did you put The Sims Four? In my C drive. Oh wow, your precious C drive. Oh, don't make fun of me. You usually don't install anything on there. You sure it's on your C drive? Yes, it is. Oh, I don't even have room on my C drive. Fuck it. <laughs> just talk <laughs> me out of it. Okay, so moving beyond Sims. Oh, I've got one. Okay, you can go first. I looked and I looked and I looked, and I could not find either of the PC Gamer articles that I'm talking about. They might have been in their magazine before they relaunched their website and published select articles on the website. Um, 
One article, I thought this was fascinating. It was by former editor-in-chief Evan Lottie. He was invited. He, he loves the game Arma, which is uh, it's like a military tactics kind of a game. It's first-person shooter um, with vehicles, sort of like Battlefield. But uh, I think it can be PvP or PvE. And it rewards like military squad tactics and communicating like a real military squad would. Um, over microphones and stuff and coordinating your efforts because you're very fragile and anything will kill you. Um, he joined a big group of players, I think like 30 players or so. Oh boy, this is going to be good. It is good. He joined them as a, a non-combat person, which is not usually the way you play that game. He was like a field journal journalist, like an embedded journalist, and uh, was interviewing people like within inside the game, was talking to them, and was observing things, and... Uh, capturing footage and having to duck beneath bullets because the people on the other side on the other team didn't care whether or not he was a, a bystander because they get points or whatever. They get a, a benefit for killing him. So he wrote a whole article, a very gonzo journalism, embedded journalism, sort of a, an idea uh, about his experience doing that, kind of as if he were a war correspondent, but inside this one scenario of the game. That's a very, very cool idea and something the game wasn't designed for but supported. That um, is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tyler Wilde um, did a similar article about EVE Online. There was, I don't know how this works exactly, but every now and then there will be plans for like a huge player versus player battle, like corporation versus corporation or faction versus faction. There are no or there are factions, I guess, but if there's any conflict, it's because players have decided to have it. Um, there, every now and then in EVE, you'll hear about like a huge battle with like literally thousands of players and with their thousands of ships all meeting in the same place and having this ridiculous, gigantic battle for hours and hours and hours. Um, Tyler Wilde caught wind of one of these and he flew his own ship into the fray, uh, just to view it and to report on it. And it was an interesting article as well. And he talked to a few people if he could, and he tried to stay in character. And I think his character, like he played as a journalist, in the game as well. So some people took them seriously and some people didn't. And some people just don't care who they're killing. They'll kill a journalist, no problem. Because then they can either get the last laugh or take whatever resources from his ship. So that was an interesting one as well. Very uh, embedded journalism, war, uh, war journalist kind of a thing. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah. That's, not, that's a really interesting way of playing those games. It is. And it was just a little one-off, but it makes for a great story. Yes, it does. So... I've talked about this game previously, and now I act like a complete fuckface in it. Gone home. Mm. <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. The, the objective of that game is to find out why you're, where your family is and where your sister is. Me? Instead, what do I do? I move the festive Christmas duck, the Christmas duck to the toilet. It has to sit on the toilet. I just move stuff around because I can. There is no reason for this. I do it because I can. <laughs> oh yes I remember this yeah tro did Trolls show you this yes he did so I'll, I'll put this in the show notes Trolls sent us this uh, picture of someone else had this idea too they took every object from the whole house and threw them into the foyer near the front door yep I did it but I put every object I could find in the bathroom so it was even more chaotic so yeah that's totally not how you play the game but why not why not? Uh, let's see. What else do we got? 
Skyrim, Skyrim and Oblivion, basically, Skyrim, the newest version of that. But the idea behind this was to ignore the main plot line, because who the fuck wants to fight the stupid dragon anyway? The, having the dragons in the world just makes it more of a pain in the butt. Yeah. I mean, you're minding your own business, and all of a sudden this big fire-breathing lizard comes across you and decides that he wants some uh, hero barbecue. It was the same in Oblivion with the... Uh, Daedric Gates. Hellgates or whatever? Yeah. Um, oh, Oblivion Gates. Yeah. Yeah, in both of those games, you start off the game and you walk around the world and whatever, but if you do a certain number of primary storyline quests, it unlocks, like, the big bad evil. So in Oblivion, all of a sudden, a bunch of these hell Oblivion Gates will appear around the map. And, and Videjra, which I believe they were. That's right. And then in uh, Skyrim, if you get far enough in the story, then dragons will appear randomly in the world. But if you don't do those story-based missions, then those things never happen. So if you're enjoying everything but the primary story, then the game's a little easier, a little more open. Yep, and then you can just walk around the world. You can pick your nerd route. You can pick all your various stuff. You know, then you look in your bag and realize, oh, I got all this cheese here. I need all your cheese. Yep. You can uh, decide that you're not going to be a law-abiding citizen and make it your primary objective to go into towns and just slaughter all the town's guards. Yeah, you wrote on my old blog, you had a whole screenshot photojournalism romp of you killing all the town guards and then Which showing one? A bunch uh, I forget what town that was in. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember the name of the towns. It's I miss Oblivion now. That was a good game. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> it was just outside the Imperial City. It was one of the first cities, you, one of the first towns you go to, actually. Okay. So I wrote a complete thing about going on a rampage in this town and just leaving all these dead guards and then killing all the townspeople. Mm -hmm. the, there was no point to it. I mean, what, what was my bounty? I think my bounty was so high that I it just it was it was worth it just to keep killing. It was it wasn't even, it was worth it just to get, make it go higher. Mm -hmm. Forget paying it off, just make it go higher. That's right. I think I got it to like two hundred thousand gold or something. And I like that it gives you the option, if you get caught, you can either pay your fine, uh, tell them screw you and kill the guards and try to get away, or you can stay in jail, proportionate to how much how much uh, bounty you owe. And the longer you stay in jail, the more your skills atrophy and you have to earn them back again. I thought that was cool. Oh, but you go to jail and you have one lockpick. So you have a chance to pick the lock one single time. And if it breaks, then you have to serve your whole jail sentence. Yeah, so if your lockpicking skill is high enough, you will get out. Mm-hmm. But then you have to sneak out and find your gear and and, and uh, all that stuff, too. And then you're still wanted. Mm-hmm. So not only are you wanted for, you know, kicking the local town chicken, breaking into the jeweler's house and uh, killing a couple of guards, but now mm. you're also wanted for escaping from their pathetic little prison that couldn't even hold your... Uh, <laughs> hold you in all your magical gear. Mm-hmm. You really... You're by the time, usually at this point when you're so overpowered and you've accumulated this bounty, you'd think that the fact that you have these really powerful magic skills that you could just blast them through the walls and uh, get out. But no, you got to sit there and think think about what you done did. Mm -hmm. oh, I, the I, other I, fun thing is uh, mm -hmm. tossing the food around and moving all, your, moving all the food and various books to different rooms. Oh, yeah, I like that. There was a mechanic in uh, Oblivion. They, they uh, fixed it a little in Skyrim. In Oblivion, if you take an object and put it in your bag and it doesn't belong to you and someone sees it, then you get in trouble for being a thief. But 
if you hold the Z button, that was like the ragdoll button. <laughs> so that would be you could hold down the Z button to like temporarily put something in your hand. But then when you let go of the Z button, then you let go of it. So it was a good way to move things around or to drag a corpse somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you could uh, you could like take an apple. If there's a guy sitting in a chair across the room, you could like pick up an apple, walk across the room, like balance the apple on the guy's head. <laughs> oh. Let go of Z. I know exactly which one you mean. There's an Oh, there's a whole thing in Skyrim, I remember, of uh, yeah. putting buckets over people's heads and they didn't even notice. Oh, no, no, no. They did notice. It was like you put a bucket on their head and then you could steal whatever you wanted because they couldn't see anymore, but yeah. they didn't take it off or anything. I see. Oh, you have all these pictures of bucket. Wow. Yeah, someone has a basket. Put um, that in the show notes, will you? Okay, here we go. That's beautiful. You image. <laughs> okay, perfect. And then there was another one where you could uh, put put it. You could put a bunch of shit on uh, one of the kings. You could uh, pile uh, fruit on the kings. <laughs> That's sweet. Mm-hmm. Wow, searching for Skyrim bucket is like a cornucopia of ridiculousness. <laughs> oh, basket helmet, bucket helmet, kettle helmet. <laughs> Happy Bucket. Oh, no, I missed this game, too. we got to stop talking about games. It makes me want to play them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I have another PC Gamer story. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this this is what uh, convinced me to play Oblivion in the first place, was PC Gamer's review. I mean, there were previews, and the graphics looked incredible, yeah. and the, the world looked amazing. I was going to play it anyway, but uh, what opened me up to what sort of, a, like, what informed me about what sort of a game it was uh, was this one comment in the PC Gamers review of Oblivion, which said it was talking about this one mission where you are supposed to help a vampire hunter, but I think in the end it turns out that the vampire hunter himself is a vampire and was playing a trick on everyone. And so there's different ways you can set traps or kill this vampire hunter. Of course, you can just <laughs> you can just oh, you can just stab him a bunch. <laughs> You can just uh, stab him a bunch or cast your magic spells and beat him in combat. But uh, if you, you know, you know what's going to happen. You can load the game and like set these elaborate traps where you like balance an anvil on a chandelier or something. And then as soon as he reveals himself to be the bad guy, you shoot the chandelier and the anvil falls off and lands right on the guy's head and kills him instantly. Or my favorite one was you can keep casting these freeze spells on him, which uh, immobilize him. And, uh, then you uh, just slowly shove him uh, along the landscape, like playing hockey with a hockey puck on ice, skidding him across the ground until you shove him off a cliff, and he falls off the cliff and <laughs> dies from the impact. So that was really, really amazing, just the creativity of this reviewer and uh, all the different ways that they found to make the condition of this quest uh, come to pass, which would uh, allow them to pass that uh, objective. Bianca's now looking at... Uh, screenshots I saw of, uh, like, mountains of cheese wheels and stuff. Yeah, apparently there's this one person, I'm trying to find a comic, where they just kept piling food on uh, Ulfric's dorm club. <laughs> well, while you're looking for that, I remember another fun thing in uh, in Oblivion, which you can find lots of really low-quality potato, like, potato-quality uh, <laughs> videos on YouTube just because yeah. of when it, was, when it occurred, how long ago it was, but... There used to be this bug where you would take a bow and arrow. Perfect. You would, Got it. Oh, good. You would draw your arrow back and keep holding it back. Um, Until you were looking like 
like perfectly straight well, up. Well, it didn't. It didn't matter where you looked exactly. I thought maybe you're right. No, I think it didn't matter. But you would just hold your, you draw your arrow and have it knocked and pulled all the way back. Then you would press to, tab to go into your inventory. Usually take watermelons or potatoes or whatever you or want. Cheese wheel. Something that you had lots of. I don't remember the mechanics of this of this exactly, but the idea was, you you go into your inventory while your arrow is pulled all the way back. Then you would. Um, Unequip your arrow and then click some object that's not an arrow. For example, uh, a watermelon. Then you would unpause the game. And instead of shooting your arrow, you would shoot however many of that object you had in your inventory. I think it was however many arrows you have, that's how many of the object you just clicked you yeah. would shoot. So you would, you would let go of your arrow and 735 watermelons would come out of the front of your bow. And that game used the Havoc physics uh middleware so the watermelon would all like first it would deal with the issue of there being 700 watermelon occupying the exact same space right in front of you so the watermelons would fly all over the place then they would basically like settle down and start like rumbling all around along the ground if you were on a hill even better because these 700 watermelons would start rolling down a hill um I'll find an example of this. It was really hilarious. It was so much fun to play with, and it was a great way to abuse the game. Um, there are great videos of like people standing on top of a house and and uh, summoning like three thousand cheese wheels. I think the, later on they added these modding tools or like these cheating tools that would allow you to spawn items like this without having to exploit the bug. I think the bug got patched out even. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! So you could just summon like thirty thousand. Uh, pumpkins while you're standing on top of a mountain and then just watch this incredible majestic waterfall of, of watermelons or pumpkins rolling down a mountain down towards a town. Oh, and perfect. Then, I just found a video. Oh, that's great. And the watermelons would be like smashing into people and killing them and knocking them over onto their backs and stuff and like carrying dogs away in the <laughs> tide of pumpkins. It was just so funny. Yes, it is. Video games. <laughs> so that was great emergent gameplay based on exploiting a bug. And it basically served no purpose other than just to... Amusement. Exactly. Are you going to put that in the show notes? I already have. Thank you, Tuts. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's corpse dragging, which is always fun to drag them to wherever. <laughs> but you usually couldn't drag them out of the building you were in, which is unfortunate. Yeah, that's right. You couldn't take them outside of the area you were in. So what else we got? We kind of struggle to think of a lot of examples. We're getting through our list pretty quickly, but there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. uh, ooh, we're really close to the end of our list here. Uh, here we go, Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, I was just playing some GTA V uh, before the podcast again today. I've almost finished it for the second time. I've been playing it slowly for the past three or four months or so again. Um, I've already talked about it so in, in, on the show before, so I won't go into any great length, but one of my favorite things to do in GTA is to perch myself up really high so that I can see a lot of the area around me in like an urban area. So I'll get up like on a construction site on a, a building being constructed, or I'll go up to the roof of a, of a low rise building or something like that. And hopefully I'm overlooking like an intersection or an area with lots of cars and lots of people. Yep. And I'll uh, look down uh, with a sniper rifle or something or with my pistol, I'll shoot one bullet and that's all I do. And it won't hit anyone necessarily. I'll just shoot one bullet. 
and everybody just goes apeshit. The mm -hmm. people start running around all over the place. The cars all get scared, and they start crashing into each other and into buildings and running over people. Just this one teeny tiny little catalytic event that I do that makes this entire explosion of like dynamic motion and AI going berserk is a very, very funny thing to do. Mm -hmm. And you, don't, you just have to shoot the pavement. You don't have to shoot anybody for it to go crazy. Yeah, that's right. So that's really fun. My my favorite thing is I like I've uh, parked cars in the middle of the traffic in the middle of traffic. Mm -hmm. And then just watch people get more and more impatient while they bump into it, and then somebody else bumps into the guy. There's like a whole line of traffic. You put your car in front of it, and so the guy who's in front hits your car, and he's pissed off, and he's like inching closer and closer and shoving it little by little by little. And then the person behind him will get in an accident with that guy. And then the two of them will get angry at each other. One of them will get out and kick the car. And then that car will drive away fast and crash into three more cars. It's just like dominoes toppling. It's shooting fish in a barrel. It's just so amusing. It's very amusing. That's just an example where I don't even need to shoot my gun. All I got to do is just find any car and just park it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the game plays itself. <laughs> Oh, so along those lines, I'm just going to jump away. We just watched the movie Stand By Me by Stephen King, wasn't it? Yeah. And it has this one scene where they tell the story of Lardass. And uh -huh. it's basically the story of uh, this fat kid who's picked on a lot. And so he gets his revenge by making a whole small town, like, vomit all over each other. <laughs> and it just escalates more and more with people barfing on other people, which makes them barf on someone else. Because they've been they're so disgusted that they got to barf. Mm -hmm. So... I guess I must have taken inspiration from this. Uh, or maybe it's just the people who made Postal 2 took inspiration from this. I love the game Postal 2 so much. It's a very, it's like a, I won't call it a Grand Theft Auto clone. It's, it is and it isn't. I guess it's it's got probably more in common with like uh, Oblivion or something than Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. But uh, it's the kind of game, it's a first person shooter, Postal 2. And, where, it's, and it's supposed to be extremely mundane. Well, yeah, the objectives are mundane. It'll be like buy some milk or deliver a letter or send a, get a, bring a letter to the post office or uh, go collect your paycheck. Um, and something will go wrong and then you can either get through with violent means or you can – it's very difficult, but you can escape if you want to without, without hurting anyone. And there's an achievement for it now that they've added achievements to the game for never killing anyone or something like that. It's ridiculous. It's unobtainable because the game isn't really designed like that. But you could do it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um so there's barfing in in Postal Two. Ugh. You can if you do some if someone sees something gross. One of your one of your objectives or one of your abilities in the game is that you can unzip your pants and pee on people. And apparently you've got this like infinite bladder. I don't get it. Oh, it's not infinite. You have like a bladder meter, but it like recharges really quickly. So you can only pee for so long, but then you stop. You like zip it up again, and it starts recharging. It's kind of. I don't know. It's kind of biologically improbable, I suppose. But um, if you do something gross like that, if someone sees a dead body or uh, someone who is badly hurt or if you pee on someone or something, <laughs> then sometimes somebody will start to barf. And because barfing is a gross thing, sometimes barfing makes somebody else barf too. And so you can get these incredible chain reactions of people standing on the street barfing. <laughs> and if someone's standing on like a – if they're on a hill – 
then they'll barf and it'll like roll down the hill and then it'll, a whole bunch of other people will start to see it. And if you're a real jerk like I am, you've got like a shovel in your hand and you'll see somebody barfing and you swing your shovel, it goes bang and the person's head goes flying off and barf starts spewing out of their, oh, man. Out of, barf oh. spews out of their, their spurting neck hole Ew. instead of blood, which is so funny. That game is hilarious. Yes, it is. But ew, that's so gross. So that's another example, just like GTA, how you can do some action that'll set off this huge chain reaction of ridiculous man. And there's no point to it because it's not even part of the gameplay itself. That's right. No, chances are it's going to get someone angry at you and they'll shoot at you or something. You'll, you'll. There's really no benefit to it in the game. It's just something that's amusing. It's a an unstable sandbox simulation where one little catalyst can make everything go wrong. So that's very amusing. Hmm. Yeah, I do have Postal 2. I should play it. <laughs> I have a lot of games I should play. Yeah, I know. That game's fine. I don't know if it's aged very well, but it's it gave me so much enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So other things, of course, that I do in GTA that I mentioned before, just going for a walk or riding in a taxi. Today I uh, today I took mass transit. I, I found a, it was like a light rail or like a streetcar kind of a thing. I got on the streetcar and I rode around. And it was it was funny too. I, I got on and it was an empty streetcar. And it kind of, it's not a cutscene, but it shows external views of the streetcar while it's uh, driving around the town. And then when we arrived at our destination, it was full of people. And two of them were drinking drinks. And they stood up and they both threw their drink on the, on the ground. Yeah. And then <laughs> I walked outside and one guy like walked right into a pole <laughs> and got stuck behind another person and was getting all impatient because he couldn't go where he wanted to. And then the door closed and someone who had intended to get off had to go to the next stop. <laughs> it was really funny. And then you punched the poor guy who walked into the pole. Oh, well, the guy walked into a pole and then he walked into me and he's like, screw you, pal. And he shoved me. So I punched him. I, I accidentally killed him with one punch. And this guy looked exactly like me. <laughs> Which was really weird. It played out when I had a, a beard. He looked just like me. I punched it. I killed him with one punch and I took his $18. <laughs> I didn't mean to, buddy. I just wanted to punish you for shoving me. Jeez. What? Yeah, fuck you, Pass Brian. <laughs> yeah, really. What an ass. Um, oh, and something else funny happened in that game today, too, where it was the end of a, a story based cutscene. Oh, yeah. And two people were having like a, a serious conversation and somebody crashed into a into a, la- a lamppost. Oh, yes. And they kept like backing up and crashing back into it again. So there's all this ridiculousness going on in an otherwise serious conversation. I, I, I love that. I know. Or you'll be trying to do something and... Oh, my favorite is when you're not intending to cause mayhem and the AI just causes it itself. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example? Um, I was trying, I was waiting at an intersection to go through because I was trying, I needed to drive carefully and not draw any attention to myself. Mm-hmm. And so I stop at a red light. This guy haunts me but, and drives into me, tries to, and decides he wants to pass me and gets and causes a big ruckus in the intersection. Mm-hmm. And all these other cars just crash into each other. I'm mm-hmm. going, oh, huh. And I'm supposed to get through with this car unscratched. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I thought I had another GCA story, but I can't think of anything right now. Hmm. I know that uh, there's always you're walking around, going out to the buildings. Uh, oh, well. Oh, don't you? Wasn't it just driving around? I do enjoy just driving around and just walking around and all that kind of stuff. It's just so beautiful. Nice little place to inhabit. True. And then you go around and you pick up prostitutes. 
I only do that today. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto V, I don't know if it's just the PC version. They have a first-person mode, which is new for Grand Theft Auto. It's such a good first-person mode with great animations. You can look down and see your body and whatever or you've dressed yourself in. You're clearly wearing that. Um, so, and, and teaching yourself to drive in first-person is really tough. It's a lot easier in third-person where you can see what's all around you, especially having to back up. Uh, but one thing I tried today, just for the heck of it, because when you, you can switch between protagonists in that game, and whenever you switch to a different protagonist at will, that protagonist will have been doing something, living their lives in some way. So when I switched to one of the protagonists, Michael, he was surrounded by prostitutes on the side of the street, and he said, oh, thanks, ladies, not today, and he lifts up his left hand and shows the wedding ring. And then I, uh, so I walked over to my car, and one of the prostitutes ignored what I had just said and, like, knocked on the window and was, like, writhing around all sexy-like. <laughs> and so I honked my horn, and then she got in the car. So I'm like, okay, I guess we're doing this. So I drove around to a, I drove around uh, to the parking lot behind the building, and she asked me what what do I want, and it said fifty dollars or seventy five or a hundred. So I said okay, a hundred dollars. And so all in first person, she like climbs on top of me, is like bouncing up and down and moaning, and has facial expressions and stuff. And uh, that was uh, kind of interesting in first person. Yes, it was. <laughs> I wasn't quite expecting that. That's kind of neat. <laughs> I didn't. I hadn't occurred to me until just now, and I'm looking at my Steam list, and Euro Truck Simulator comes to mind because there's a. The objective is to base it to eventually own your own truck and drive and have these cup and have all these cup and own the uh, biggest company. I have played it, so I don't actually. So I own trucks, but I don't drive my own truck. Oh, that's right. Because then. Whoever you, whatever company you're driving for gets stuck with your gas and repair bill. Exactly. Which are usually substantial. <laughs> That's so bad. I've You've gotten been, a hell of a lot better lately. You usually get there with like 1% or 2% damage now. And it's usually the fault of the drivers on the uh, road because I'm being really careful in some way. And in fact, I had it got to the point where people started driving into me because I was going the speed limit. Oh, wow. You finished uploading your comics. Yeah. It only took like an hour and a half. Yeah, the duration of the... Uh, Podcast, come on. Oh, or did it just... St oh, no, it's... What happened? I don't know. Oh, I hope it didn't fuck off at the very last second. Well, our internet connection seems to still be up. Seems to be. Sorry, I interrupted you. What were we saying? Yeah, so... Although the objective is to drive your, your own... Oh. oh. Upload error. Oh, you're fucking kidding me. Oh, there. It, uh, it uh, just ignored one that was over 100 megabytes. It worked otherwise. Okay. Well, you'll know it worked if you um, hit cancel or close this, and on the left, click My Book, My Books. Okay. And you should have a bunch... Oh, you're kidding me. That's why I don't do a whole shitload of them in one go. I do several in one go. I know. We'll wait for a while and see if it works. No need to tie up our internet for another hour and a half. Anyway. Okay. What were we saying? So, I I'll just try a small bunch. Yeah, okay. Okay. Oh, that's much better. So I was just saying that I don't necessarily I play it, so I don't have so I play it, so I own a bunch of companies, but I don't drive my own truck, which is against what the uh, design is. The design is ideally you want to drive your own truck, and it rewards you for that when you hire individuals. Mm -hmm. So I mean that I have to hire individuals with a less than stellar rating, and then have them level up under my, on my payroll. Mm -hmm. Because I noticed that when you played and you drive your own, you get, you have the option to get drivers with a higher rating than I do. Oh, and why do I? Because you drive your own vehicle. 
You drive your own truck. I don't. Oh, is that why? Yes. Because you played a lot more than I have. You have way more buildings. I have one building. You have how many? How I have four garage. Now? That's amazing. You have like four 20 garage. drivers, don't you? Yeah, I have like 15 drivers. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. It takes me forever to make what you make in a day. Yeah, but I don't, uh, but like I said, I don't play the way that it was intended to be played. I Because pl- the idea is you're supposed to have your own truck and you drive to each location, pick up the cargo and drive it. I play freelance style, but I'm the owner of a company, which is kind of weird. Yeah, it's neat. It's great that you have the option to do that. Mm-hmm. So let's see, what else do we have? The last, I think the last one on our list is WoW, and I thought that would be a good one to talk about last. Yeah, but wait a second. Didn't you also have Doom? Oh, right. I only have one thing in Doom. I mean, that's not a game. Doom is a game where you uh, you start at the beginning of a level, and you get to the end of the level, and then you go to the next level, and then you do that for all the levels until the game is done. It's not a sandbox game, although it has some sandbox elements. I mean, probably the coolest sandbox element of Doom is the fact that enemies can harm each other with their bullets, and they're aware of who hit them with a the bullet. So if there's a huge swarm of enemies in a room, it's a perfectly common and valid strategy to just kind of circle around the room, trying to get the enemies to shoot each other, and then they get pissed off at each other, and then they start having a firefight with each other, and they do your work for you. That's That's interesting. It's a great thing. You don't see that in shooters, like, ever anymore. That might have just been unique to Doom, for all I know. I've seen actually... In WoW, with ogres, what happens really? is if you can bring a bu- couple of ogres to you and get them to, st- if you can bring a bunch of ogres together and you get them in a nice little tight circle around you, they'll inevitably hit each other and then they'll start fighting each other. I didn't know they did that. That's amazing because usually they don't. They just don't hurt each other. They don't react to each other's like they're impervious to each other's attacks. They are, but for some reason the ogres, if they they'll swing and they'll complain like, "Hey, you hit me." Oh, that's amazing. That's just part of their culture, I guess, being yeah. ogres. That's yes. fantastic. So then they'll complain and then they'll hit each other. Wow. Mm-hmm. So then this brings us to... Oh, wait. Oh, so Doom. Right. So the only thing I wanted to mention... Um, oh, okay, good. I, I was worried this is going to be another PC gamer story, but according to my notes, I read this in Computer Gaming World, and I'm sure I'm correct. Um, one thing uh, in the Doom 2 review that I read back in the day, they were talking about how it's so much more difficult than Doom 1. And how that's such a great thing and what makes it a better game than Doom 1. But the reviewer did something that I emulated later on and I really enjoyed doing, which they said that um, Doom 2 was so much harder that just to challenge himself, he went back to Doom 1 to the end of uh, episode 1. I guess that's episode E1M8, um, where the final battle is two barons of hell. And uh, those are like bullet sponge guys with tons of hit points and... They do melee damage, and they also throw these green fireballs, which hurt a whole lot. Mm. Oh, yeah, those fireballs. (laughs) I don't want to stand in front of those. No, you don't. So he challenged himself and succeeded in defeating those two barons of hell with nothing but a pistol. And so I'm like, oh, I got to try that. So I did that, too. And, And then I tried playing the vast majority of that game. I think I played almost the whole episode one with nothing but the pistol, and I did very well. So that was a fun challenge, too. That's just playing a game, ignoring the tools that it gives you and playing it your own way. I appreciate that. Okay, well, should we go to our very last one? Yes, World of Warcraft. This is definitely one where... uh, Actually, maybe... I'm actually not going to go to World of Warcraft first. I want to talk about nation states. Oh, awesome. Yeah, because we do have some basic 
parameters established. We have the world assembly. We have daily issues, and we have issues, and uh, we have it so you can uh, enter and customize your nation, and you can make and do whatever you and basically customize your nation however you want. Mm -hmm. People, individuals have taken to creating regions is specifically devoted to role play and different types of role play depending on the era, century. Oh, you're fucking kidding me. Whatever. I'll figure that out later. Oh, it says you can't upload anything bigger than 100 megabytes. Yeah, and I thought so. that I had less than 100 megabytes with these two files selected. Oh, that's weird. It's No, it's less than 100 megabytes per file. It shouldn't matter. That's really strange. Yeah, this is only 21 megabytes. Let's Why don't you, after this one is done, close it and look at your My Books thing again, because maybe it will have... Maybe that stuff has appeared already. Okay, so you, so people have taken to creating their own little niches for basic types of... Okay, that's retarded. This stupid... So mm. apparently Google Books does not want me to upload something that's less than, that's uh, oh. only 21 megabytes. Click, and keeps telling me. Click My Books. Yep. Oh, what the heck? Well, I don't know. Leave it for a while and see whether it it detects your stuff. You uploaded a shitload of stuff all at once. Oh, keep up to... Oh, I guess it doesn't like this format then. Oh, keep up to a thousand EPUB or PDF files. Okay, I guess I'm trying to upload uh, Interesting. CBR files. Oh, that's why. Yeah, it doesn't do CBR. Mm -hmm. Okay, anyway. Okay, so people have formed their own uh, little groups for role-playing, such as past... Uh, such as historic role play, which usually has like prehistoric nations ranging from medieval renaissance or even uh, shall we or even nineteenth century style weapons. So they play based on that, and they don't interact with nations with people who don't have nations of that type. So this is just role playing verbally, you mean, right? Yeah, role playing textually. Yeah, so it's not actually a mechanic of the game; it's just the members of this community are brought together in the forums or whatever, and that's how they play. Yes, we have the forum, and they use it to, to their own ends. They Some people even go as far as to create worlds, their own uh, wikis, their own images that show how their people dress. They create uh, breakdowns of their armed forces. They create uh, their weapons, how these weapons work. Like None of this was prescribed in the game itself like do you have no idea what year this game is supposed to be set in so people have decided that their nation is set you know a million years in the future or it's set uh two thousand years ago people have decided arbitrarily what year they want their uh, nation to be set in or maybe it's even an alternative universe like it doesn't exist on earth mm -hmm. like me i created my own special planet for one of my countries right what was it called? Oh, let's see. I got a really stupid name for it. I hope I hope I don't embarrass myself. Here we go. Back book. And let's see. Where is my planet? Okay. Killin. Q-Y-L-I-N. It's the name of my planet. Okay. Um, it's basically a, an Earth-like planet with a ring and its own moon. Like, Saturn-style rings around it, and it has a moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sid Meier's Pirate's nice. Sorry, I'm flipping through an old uh, computer gaming world <laughs> issue and distracting Bianca <laughs> thoroughly. 
Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> so basically, you create your own planets. You describe your nation however you want. And so people have taken to doing this. Some people don't do this. They uh, they stick strictly to the World Assembly and they legislate for the world. I mean, they will play in that respect or they don't role play at all. Some people just play the, the invasion game where you take over regions. That is a more controversial area. Some people love it. Some people really despise it and want it disbanded by the moderators because they perceive it as a form of cyberbullying. Some people ignore any form of roleplay or gameplay and instead just decide that they like the site for the community and interacting with people and otherwise arguing with people whose opinions uh, they disagree with. Mm-hmm. And that's putting it quite mildly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, some people actually play their nation. They take it very seriously, almost too seriously. Other people don't take it seriously at all and have the worst named nations. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I mean, there was at one point someone with the name My Pants. That's a great ma- nation. It was. Unfortunately, they had multiple like, violations and just were generally ignorant of the rules. What, do they pledge allegiance to my pants? <laughs> well, their name, or their full name, because you can customize your na- your, na- your uh, nation's prefix. Mm-hmm. So they were the party of In My Pants. Oh, that's a no-no? Well, it was it, the name itself wasn't, but the image that they associated with their nation made it the problem and their custom fields. So. That's understandable. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of, some people don't take it seriously and they don't have serious names. Other people take it seriously and they have serious names. Mm-hmm. And they make all, and some people even go as far as to create all these elaborate weapon systems. Some people will play like economic powers and they, and they create their own little companies that sell products. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting that how individual players have decided to approach the uh, world and to, and how they want to be part of it. Yeah. So that's just another example, I would say, because, I mean, we didn't set up anything. This is just what people chose to do. That's great. Mm-hmm. So now, finally, we'll move on to the big one, World of Warcraft. Great. We've talked about this plenty of time, so there's no need for us to describe the world. So let's go into some of the uh, more interesting things that you can do that are outside of questing and adhering to the leveling structure. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I know that, let's see, there are people who do level, but they don't adhere to the standard leveling structure. I believe there was a panda called Agent or something, a Pandaren called Agent. This is a player that rolled a panda and decided that they were not going to pick a faction. Mm-hmm. Instead, they stayed on on the Wandering Isles until level 90. Yeah, that's right. So that was the area. That's like the start. It's supposed to be the first 20 levels or something of content. Yeah. And so this person stayed there and leveled up by doing pet battles, I believe, and by... Picking, picking herbs, herbs and flowers, picking herbs and mining nodes, and that was it. They had no access to any auction house or anything like that. They couldn't join a guild. They couldn't do anything. I don't. I don't. I believe they might have had access to heirlooms. No, they didn't. No, no, no. Mailbox. Oh, that's right. This was even before the uh, heirlooms tab and the heirloom mounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this person basically decided that they were going to level up without having a faction, which is. Because the Pandarans start without factions, and ultimately at about level between level fifteen and twenty, you pick a faction and you join either the Horde or the Alliance. That's supposed to be when the game starts. Mm-hmm. So this person did neither, and spent many months just leveling up a panda 
with no other motive, with no other means of leveling other than those which were available. And I have to admit that takes a lot of patience and dedication. I wouldn't have had the patience for that. And you have the patience for a lot. That's true. I actually did something similar to that in Guild Wars, first Guild Wars, in pre- before uh, Factions and Nightfall came out. It was uh, a standard practice, if you were really motivated, to stay in pre-searing and try and get your character to level 20 by going be- behind the wall and killing stuff there and then zoning back out. Mm-hmm. And then selling your stuff, you often got dies. So then you would see these people in uh, pre-searing gear dyed black, and they would, and they just keep, and uh, they just keep mining all of the goods there until they were level twenty. And so it was weird to see a level twenty character with no skills and no gear. Mm-hmm. So I did it. I believe I got to level sixteen before I got fed up. That's right. I also remember in Guild Wars, you would like farm. Titles by doing the uh, the the brawl thing. Yeah. What was that? It was like the drunken beer brawl or something. Yeah, the drunken Norn beer brawl. I actually matched that. Yes, you did. Mm-hmm. It took you a long time. You it did took that me a long time. Actually, no, I didn't do it. I, I maximized it for my survival title. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty bloody boring. It you was, it. but I got indomitable. I got the indomitable survivor. <laughs> I did it on a. Hunter, I know a ranger I had that did not use a bow and arrow, mm-hmm. which is another convention breaker. Instead, I relied on my pet. I made myself a primarily a beastmaster, and I used a staff to command my pet. Right. So I didn't even have a bow and arrow as a ranger, which was another, which was interesting. That was the best thing about that game is that you didn't have to conform to any any sort of preset uh, mm-hmm. uh, builds in that game because you had the primary and the secondary class. And you can yeah. dedicate yourself to your secondary class, mm-hmm. just like you must have done with the staff. That's so yep. cool. I know that you had dedicated, you had, you had taken a, um, <laughs> a necromancer and had a secondary of smiting. Yeah, that was really fun. Mm-hmm. That was so unconventional. That was awesome. Yeah, that's right. I was the Beastmaster and Necromancer, and I would, uh, I would, uh, I forget what I did exactly now. I had a million different builds. Oh, I yeah, got so you, creative in that game. I know. you. At one point, you would buff everybody. You had, like, negative mana regeneration. Yeah. But oh, you gosh. got your mana back from your uh, pets. Or, yeah, from pets or from combat or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I uh, relied on, on that one ranger. I relied on my pet, which was so fun. And so going back to World of Warcraft, this tangent was, of course, inspired by... Uh, the player who played, uh, who leveled up his uh, Pandaren by staying strictly on Noob Island. Oh, yeah. And of course, in a similar vein, there are people who make twinks with the sole purpose of staying at like level 19 for pe- for uh, rated battlegrounds or going to level 80 and not going beyond in order to achieve the title of the Herald, which requires the player to maintain an eye level of 256. And not go above it, and be level eighty, and defeat Yog Saron. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So this is people who have excellent low power, like low level gear. You have like basically just enough, just barely enough to accomplish the goal. You get an achievement for that. Yes. That's kind of neat. Yep. And so there are guilds dedicated to this. I am. I. I. I have contemplated doing it, but. I don't have anyone currently available to go to level 80. I think I've got, like, somebody at 60, 
and well, I'm not motivated. Mm-hmm. But if I do, that would be it is a feat of strength that's worth obtaining. Mm. And you can't. And the thing is, you can't obtain it if you're not 80. You have to be 80 and have an eye level of 256. Oh wow! The good news is, if you do do this, if you have another character with money, you can send the money to your char- to your uh, level 80, and you can buy the gear. Thanks to the way the game exists now, because they got rid of the justice and valor badges. It's gold now? Yes, it's gold. That makes it way easier to Mm -hmm. get, but it's still a difficult thing to accomplish. Yes, it is. And I guess if you have to do it while you're level 80, that means that you either... I guess that just means that, you know, you gain experience by killing enemies in that raid. No, you don't. you don't don't? You don't get experience from raids. I thought you did, just not much. You don't get any. Oh, so you can do it indefinitely, Mm -hmm. as long as you don't do anything else. Exactly. Interesting. So there are people dedicated to that, and there are people who are dedicated to being just twinks. There are people who uh, specifically don't level up their characters so they can, you know, just do old raids as was intended. Mm-hmm. But yeah, level 80 uh, Alduar is where it's uh, the big one right now because people want Herald of the Titans. Ah, uh, that's a fun one. Mm-hmm. Let's see now. Uh, another one that we like doing is well, I have I have a pretty my main character is decently powered. I often have decent gear, mm-hmm. and so I wind up running Brian when he eventually gets character seventy through Karazan. Uh, we have an understanding. We've done it plenty <laughs> of times for each other. It's just that your type of character makes it a lot faster and more efficient. That's true. But go ahead. I don't mean to. Yeah. So I you. play a balanced druid, which means I've got nice AOEs. I can kill everything without even have without having to really uh, focus. I pro- I pa- I pop one of my skills, which rains just stars down on everybody and pulls them to me and makes them all nice and dead before they can even uh, sneeze. <laughs> yeah. And then Brian runs around and loots everything. That's right. It's fun running people through. So like we mentioned before with Guild Wars Two how that game scales you down so that if you're playing with someone with a lower level friend in a lower level area, then you're both approximately, it it acts like you're both the same level in uh, world of Warcraft. This one area that Bianca mentioned, Karazhan, that's what for level 70 players. Yes. And it's for how many people? 20, 25. I believe it's actually, it's, I believe it was for 25, 25. So this is a, this was an area that originally 25 players, at level, each at level 70, would have a difficult time spending many hours and probably a few days uh, conquering all the enemies in this raid. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was as of as of level 90 or so we started soloing it. Or no, I think at level 90 we two-manned it, and in level 100 you can solo it. Am I right? No. Uh, level 90 you can solo it? 85 we two-manned it, 90 ah. we soloed. And 100, you, they don't even tickle you. So anyway, what what we do is if someone if one of us is a, has a level seventy character, and we want to get all the cool gear at level seventy for that that is available in that raid, the other one of us will bring their level one hundred character, and just swat all those insignificant little mosquitoes, and it takes us what maybe an hour or so to get through all. It's a really big raid. It takes maybe an hour or so to get through mm-hmm. all the bosses that would probably take a good eight or nine or ten hours yeah. for 25 people to do a few years ago. Yeah. So that's really cool. And the challenge of the person getting the, the lobby, getting the run through, is that they have to just not die. attract... Yeah, they have to not die. They have to try not to attract any attention because anything will... You know, any any enemy there is intended for 25 people to be killing. So if there's just one of you, then it's really going to hurt. Yeah. So that's a really fun thing to do for you to know that you're mightier. 
you're like eight times mightier than 25 people <laughs> a few years ago. That's just a cool thing. Yep, so that's fun. And the other one that is really fun is actually running any raid. I know one raid was particularly difficult until recently to, to solo, and that was Sunwell Plateau. And that was just because of the sheer number of enemies with CCs. Uh, crowd controls. Yes. That was an annoying one. Yeah, things that like freeze you for 30 seconds or something. Mm -hmm. You rely on your uh, teammates to either release you from the crowd control or to kill the enemy while you're completely incapacitated. Yeah. And so now that one is actually soloable. It was it was tricky at ninety for that reason, mm -hmm. because there are so many, there are a lot of them, and this and the CCs are overwhelming. Yes. Let's see. Uh, moving down. Oh, I'll mention one. Okay. Uh, what I have on our list is the Stranglethorn Fishing Extravaganza. This is a hilarious thing. Now it's the emergent the emergent gameplay emerges from this otherwise organized events. The Stranglethorn Fishing Extravaganza is one of two fishing competitions that happens each week in World of Warcraft. One is in Alliance territory and the other is in Horde territory, I think, or is it just one is in one continent, the Eastern Kingdoms, and the other is in, uh, what's the other continent? Uh, the other one's in Borean Tundra, and I believe they do the cross-realm issues. Oh. That one, that they have to do some uh, modification to it. Okay, well, anyway, the idea is... It's a fishing competition. It's not a particularly dangerous thing, or supposedly, right? You go and whoever catches the most of a certain kind of fish and gets back to the uh, fishing competition organizer wins a special prize. Um, and it's a really special prize, I believe. It's like a super unique fishing rod or something. Even though it's weekly, if you have a thousand people on your server, then it's going to take a thousand weeks for everyone to win it. So it's, you have to be really good at it. Um, What's hilarious about this competition, if you're playing on a, a PvP server, there's like two kinds of servers that you can have your character on. There's a PvE server, a player versus environment server, which means that people of the other faction, you and people of the other faction, cannot attack each other in open combat without challenging each other explicitly. Or being flagged for PvP. That's what I mean. Yeah. So you I'm have... just simplifying. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. Um, or on a PvP server, that means that if you see someone of the opposite faction in the world, you can just go and attack them, and there's nothing they can do about it except for defend themselves. Which is especially nice if you're level 100 and they're level 60. They don't have very much of a chance of surviving more than one swing of your axe. So, on a PvP server, this... Uh, innocent fishing competition is the bloodiest thing that you will ever see. Okay. People of both factions are invited to participate, and if you see somebody else with like their fishing rod equipped instead of their weapon, it's just open season. You go and you slaughter them mercilessly, and they can hardly defend themselves. If they're lucky, they're a spellcaster who can still attack you, but with much lower statistics because they're not wielding their powerful wand or their staff. Mm -hmm. However, now that the, however, this has modified it so that you can fish with a very, very basic fishing pole. So you don't even have to equip a fishing pole now. Yeah, that's right. But there's an advantage to fishing with a fishing pole because it gives you extra points in it and means you catch it more frequently. Yeah. So it, that's just a very, very funny, unexpected thing is that the deadliest, bloodiest, most harrowing, uh, Activity in all of World of Warcraft is the fishing competition. It's just incredible to see how how people slaughter each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen people slaughter each other of both factions trying to get take out a world boss that uh, is is open to be uh, killed without being in a group. Right. 
Uh, do you have anything else? I think that's it for me. Yep. Actually, we have two roleplay ones. I know that you probably talked about yours before, but mm. this one, I uh, was playing a paladin. I had a human paladin. I took my paladin into the most southern point on uh, one of the continents, Eastern Kingdoms, into a place called Booty Bay. There was a pub, or rather a tavern, I took my character into because I needed to conduct a quest there. I needed to sell... And, well, it was just a shortcut up to the Flight Master. While I'm there, I walked in, and I had stopped, said to go AFK from away from my keyboard for a moment. And next thing I know, when I come back, this other guy who, is, who had his character sitting at a table has roped me into PvP. And, had, <laughs> and I'm going, okay, I'm not doing anything. I guess I can do this. I set my character, I uh, switch my character so that I'm in walking mode. So, so normally your character runs by default. But if you're, but if you uh, role play on uh, any RP server, you tend to uh, hit the switch on your keyboard that puts your character into a walk mode. And that's how you know who is a role player because they don't run everywhere like idiots. They're walking like civilized people. Yeah, and not jumping everywhere either. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I uh, walk over to this guy, sit down, and I engage in a conversation with him. <laughs> An hour passes, and I realize that. I could have been doing a quest now this time, but instead I've been role-playing in a tavern with some stranger I've never met before. Mm-hmm. That was pretty interesting. But yeah, usually you can find uh, a lot of people who don't even level up their characters, and they, ha- and they have their characters in non-combat gear whose only purpose is to level, who is to level up. Oh, another one. I was in... Um, another zone close to the Alliance Star area. And this person approached me and told me, oh, we have this uh, market that we run, and uh, would you like to join? And so they role-played this whole market. And this one guy would have a, um, this dwarf had like an instrument, and uh, he would write out the lyrics to all these traditional uh, Celtic songs, but replace them with in-game references Mm -hmm. that were Alliance relevant. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. And so I uh, had my character uh, hang around and dance. Mm-hmm. That was pretty fun. That's another one. That, and what's really cool is uh, there were all these people uh, just standing around selling, quote unquote, their wares. Mm-hmm. They even had people. These were all people in the same guild. They had someone who would welcome and explain what was going on and invite them to participate and just look walk around and have fun. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. It was just in one of the uh, main, one of the uh, small towns outside of uh, the Alliance capital. Well, that's nice. Then the role players are not always so welcoming of uh, newcomers. They just assume that you're either uh, with them or against them. Mm-hmm. They, they don't usually. Uh, they don't usually like acclimate you to easing into it. Yeah, this one was, and so I didn't really talk too much, but I just stayed around and uh, participated. It was quite fun. That's cool. Yeah, and so some of these people, like I said, they have their own special outfits that they wear, like outside of their gear, so you're not always wearing your gear. These people take off their weapons, and their characters blend in with the world as civilians. Mm-hmm. That was fun, and I know that. Um, you actually got roped into an RP-style quest, quote-unquote. Oh, yeah. I've already talked about it on the podcast, so I won't repeat it, but this was where somebody uh, commissioned me to to uh, tailor a wedding dress. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, that was extremely cool. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Do I have anything 
else? Hmm. I don't think so. I'm hungry. Are you hungry? What, you want dinner? Yeah. I suppose I can make dinner sometime soon. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we wrap this up then and give, leave these people with a shorter podcast for some reason. Yeah, slightly shorter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We love you to pieces. And then we love those pieces until they're like little tiny gravel. And we love the gravel until that turns into like sand. And we love that sand too. That's and how we much pour we love water you. in the sand and make little sand castles. Yeah, that's how much we love you. <laughs> so if you want to, if you uh, would like to uh, get in touch with us, you can uh, reach us at squarefm.demodulated.com on the web. Email is squarefm at demodulated.com. Twitter is at squarewavesfm. And, uh, and uh, you, you smell. I can't. I took a shower. You smell. And thank you, lovely <laughs> listeners, for listening to us argue with each other. Yeah. And tune in next week when we talk about something else. Yay. Hopefully, we actually have better content. <laughs> That's right. And my goodness, thank you very much for sticking with us for 40 episodes. What an honor. Yep. 40 episodes. Long time. Mm-hmm. So, take it sleazy. See you guys next week. Yep. You're all stupid. Bye. <laughs>